Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman, joined as always by my co-host and brother, Andrew Newman, and it is time to kick off the 2022 Hello, Old Sports Sports History Network in memoriam special. For those of you who are unfamiliar, we have been doing this episode. This will be our third year now. It's usually two, sometimes three episodes where we commemorate some of the major lives that were lost in the world of sports in the year that has that is coming to an end. You will hear the voices of many of our sports history network colleagues as we go through this um these two episodes in chronological order so there's something to look forward to there as you hear the various hosts on the network pop in and out but we'll start it off with just Andrew and I and Andrew how are you doing on this evening I'm well Dan um this is obviously always a uh our end of the year undertaking that's kind of spread out across uh, a few different recording sessions and, you know, scheduling around different, uh, different guests and, and other people on the network who want to come on and, and speak. And then not to be morbid, but as happens most years, we uh, have the list and then start recording around mid December and a few people, usually pass away between when we've started recording and the end of the year who we have to sort of um, find time to, to add onto the list. So there's been a couple of those already. Hopefully there won't be many more, but you know, recent history would indicate that we will probably have some folks who uh, pass away around the holidays that we have to, uh, to add in uh, towards the end. And in fact, this first person that we're going to talk about here was somebody who I think passed away sort of late, like almost on New Year's Eve as the 31st became the first. And we had even had the conversation about whether we wanted to hop back on and and do this person as the last um, last entry of 2021. But I think we we realized that he he technically had passed away on early uh during the day of january 1st 2022 so we held off on him until until then and so um it's been a good year for the sports history network we've we've done some good episodes we've got a few um you know kind of uh getting ready to to put out december is going to be a very prolific month for us we're going to put out a whole bunch of episodes because we've got a couple that are right at the end of the editing process and by, by the time you hear this hopefully uh some of those will have already dropped so um we'd like to thank you as well for being a fan and um, Andrew, thanks for doing the show with me again for another year. And we um, we really, uh, you know, going into to year and uh, calendar year, at least number four of the Sports History Network in a couple of weeks. And we're uh, really having a good time doing this. Yep. And we got some uh, got some ideas for how we're going to start 2023. And, 
you know, we'd always welcome suggestions. Usually we get a couple of those a year and, um, you know, we'll, it's always an ongoing process to come up with different stuff to discuss. So, um, you know, we're always open for suggestions and usually we will, uh, usually we will take them and make an episode out of them. All right. So why don't we go ahead and kick it off and I will get us started right on January the 1st of this year. And that is Dan Reeves, who was born in 1944 and died on January 1st. Reeves played eight years as a running back for the Dallas Cowboys before embarking on a successful NFL coaching career that saw him lead three teams to the playoffs. His best years were with Denver in the 1980s when he coached the Broncos to three Super Bowls in four years, unfortunately losing all three. Reeves is the winningest coach, not a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I believe he is a candidate on the um, the I forget the the vet the basically the equivalent of the veterans ballot for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So he his Hall of Fame candidacy will be once again considered again this year for the 2023 induction. Obviously, he's being no longer with us, would not be there to get the honor. But, you know, growing up, I you know, obviously we remember Dan Reeves. Well, he coached the Giants for what? Four years, I think, ninety three to ninety six, and so that would be as a coach, right? They're talking, not as a player. No, I think he was a decent player, but I don't think that what he did as mm. a player, like I said, he only played the eight years. He did play a a pretty significant role in the sort of early days of the Dallas Cowboys. You know, a, a very much um, sort of a, a protege of. Tom Landry and let me let me just pull up his um Reeves's yeah playing stats here he I, I'm looking there was only two years that he ran for more than 200 yards 66 and 67 uh receiving uh, yeah 1966 and 1967 were really the only two years that statistically he had any kind of significant production now maybe you know he, i don't know if he was the greatest blocking halfback of all time I, I can't pretend i know that but um it seems like you know it would mostly be as a coach the one thing i wanted to say it's weird because the thing that i remember dan reeves most as is the least successful part of his career so i don't want to make it just about that he had a lot of success as a coach before the Giants and he actually had some success after the Giants with uh with the Falcons. He coached in another Super Bowl. He was there with the early days of Michael Vick when they kind of uh revolutionized the off you know, not revolutionized, but sort of uh rapidly changed how offensive football was played. So yes, my immediate recollection of Dan Reeves is watching Dave Brown throw a lot of incomplete passes as the Giants went six and ten, but that's not a representative sample of what the guy's coaching career, to say nothing of his playing career, was. You know, and it's funny, too, because I don't associate him with those Michael Vick teams. I associate him more with the late nineties when he came in and the, the 14 and two year, the team that that 14 and two Falcon team that beat the Vikings in the NFC championship game in Minnesota. And, and that, that Viking team that was 15 and one, who was it? Was it, it was Gary Anderson that missed the field goal for the Vikings, correct? Yes. 
because the Vikings had Gary Anderson and the mm-hmm. Falcons had Morton Anderson, two all-time great quarterback or oh, two all-time great kickers, I should say. And the Falcons, who even though at fourteen and two were significant underdogs, won and went to that Super Bowl, and then they lost. Um, ironically enough, for Dan Reeves, they lost to Denver. I associate him more with those years, but yeah, he he was with the Falcons. Took um, o two took the Falcons to the playoffs. And that I think was, that was one of Vic's best years. If I'm remembering correctly in 2002, let me, that, up. that was his breakout year. Yeah. That was the year that he, uh, you know, really made a lot of those early highlight plays and, and the Falcons got to the second round of the playoffs. And then the next year he got hurt. Reeves got fired and, you know, he had a few more good years with Atlanta, but Oh, two was really the year that made him a, uh, a central figure in the NFL for a while. And I don't know the story off the top of my head, but it's interesting that he would have gotten fired the year after taking them to the playoffs, winning a game in the playoffs, and then to, to get fired. Nonetheless, you kind of associated him with sort of a very kind of laconic approach. He wasn't really much of a yeller. You didn't think he was very much sort of in the mold of his mentor, Tom Landry and Landry actually used Reeves as an assistant coach while Reeves was still an active player in the early 1970s. So Reeves has a championship ring with the 19, what would it be? The 1971 Cowboys, Mm -hmm. the team that beat the Dolphins. By this point in his career, he was very much, this was his second to last year in the league. He only ran the ball 17 times for 79 yards and had a couple receptions. So he was long long gone um, as far as his prime was concerned, but he was both an assistant coach and a player. So he does have, does have a Super Bowl ring as a player with the Dallas Cowboys. His most famous moment as a player or his sort of most well known moment as a player, he threw a touchdown pass in the ice bowl in the, I believe it was at the beginning of the fourth quarter. He threw a touchdown pass to Lance Rensel on a halfback option that put the Cowboys up 17 to 14. The In the ice ball, the Packers came out, took a 14, nothing lead. And then it was 14, 10 after that. And for a, for a long period of the game, this game stood at 14 to 10. And in fact, let me pull up the first play of the fourth quarter, first play of the fourth quarter. Let me pull up. So it was 17 to 21 was the final score. So in the ice ball, green Bay scores, uh, in the first quarter and then again in the second quarter, two touchdown passes from Bart Starr to Boyd Daller. Cowboys get a couple of turnovers, including a fumble return for a touchdown, make it 14 to 10. And then for the rest of the second quarter and for all of the third quarter in this frigid, getting darker game atmosphere in the ice ball, nobody's doing much of anything. And then, like you said, just to start the fourth quarter, Reeves on a halfback option throws a 50 yard touchdown pass to Lance Rensel makes it 17, 14. And everybody thought that that was going to be the deciding score, the ice ball until the very end of the game when Bart Starr sneaks it in from the one yard line. So you don't necessarily associate Dan Reeves with the ice ball, but he played a really crucial role in one of the great games in NFL history. Yeah. And then you know, he he retires in the early 70s. He takes over in Denver in 81. He's actually the coach in Denver for 13, 12 seasons. Yeah, from 81 to 92, he's the coach in Denver. 
Um, they only have two losing seasons. One is in 82, which is the nine game season. They go two and seven. And then uh, in 1990, they went five and 11. But other than that, they were no worse than eight and eight. We talked about how they made the three Super Bowls, you know, and, and again, it's sort of a thing where and we've talked about this with the Bills and, and I don't know if we've talked about it with the 70s Vikings, but it's the, it's the truth with the 70s Vikings too. the footage that really I don't want to say survives, but the footage that you see, I think we talked about this with the 85 Patriots was what we talked about. Yeah. The highlights you see is of them getting their butts kicked for, you know, by the um, the Giants in 86, by the uh, Redskins the next year. And then especially in 89, when they 55 to 10 lose to the 49ers. So you don't see the clips from, I guess with 86, you do see a lot of, you know, you see the drive, but you don't see a lot of clips of, you know, do you know off the top of your head who they beat in the 89 AFC championship game? You know, I think it might've actually been Cleveland again. No, it was, where was it? Buffalo. I think it was Cleveland again, but you know, it's, you don't know who they beat in the divisional rank. You know what I mean? Like, and when most of the time when people talk about those AFC championship games, they talk about it in the lens of Cleveland. So my, my point is more, it unfortunately gets colored the run they had. You know, they made three Super Bowls in four years. They're one of the only teams that's ever done that. Obviously, well, there's there's more than a few, but, you know, there's a there's a handful. They lost them all, but it still was a, a long run of dominance. And he's one of the only guys to ever take two teams to the Super Bowl. And let's not underestimate what that 98 AFC champion NFC championship game was. That was one of the big you know, sort of memorable football moments, upsets in the last 30 years was that 98 AFC cha- NFC championship game. Who else has done it? Parcells, Holmgren. Yeah, Parcells, Holmgren, Shula. Shula's um, the one, yeah. I feel like there's at least one more that I'm not thinking of, but. Uh... Oh, Andy Reid. And Andy Reid. Yeah, that's another one. That's a good point. So, yeah, I think the fact that they got smacked so much in all three of those Super Bowls probably doesn't help with the legacy. And also, I had forgotten about this. He and Elway did not like each other much. Of- we forgot about Dick. We forgot about Dick Vermeil, too. Sorry. Vermeil's another one. Yeah, I've just got to the hall. And John Fox. And we did this as a trivia question a few weeks ago, I think. John Fox. But anyway. Oh, the yep, Broncos. Panthers and then the, the Broncos, the one they got their butts kicked, you know, in 13. Sorry, go ahead. About him and Elway and their relationship. They didn't like each other. They got into things over. They got into it over play calling. They even at the height sort of of the team doing so well, they definitely did not see eye to eye quite a bit. There's one meeting where they're they're trying to bring peace between the two tension over play calling. And Elway just looks at Reeves in a meeting and says, I hate you more than I hate anybody in the world. So (laughs) maybe not the uh, maybe not. He said, I hate you more than any person on this planet. Um, and this was Mike Shanahan trying to bring up who was the offensive coordinator, trying to bring some peace between the two. And Shanahan says, after Elway said that, I realized maybe it wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> um, so, so Reeves leaves. I, there was a sports illustrated uh, article or a sports illustrated cover. I should say that I had forgotten about, but then when I read about it, I remembered it and it was the two of them. And it's Reeves saying, grow up. And Elway saying good riddance. And it's like, you know, like the split down the middle showing the two of them had had broken up. And that was when Reeves went to the Giants. And then was Reeves directly replaced by Mike Shanahan in Denver? I think he was, right? 
That sounds right. Yeah, I don't know who it would have been in the middle. Or was so, it Wade was it Phillips, the coach in Denver, for a while? Let's look that up real quick here. I feel who like I remember there? Wade Phillips in between, maybe for two years, maybe 93 and 94. Um, yeah, Phillips was the head coach, 93 and 94. And then it went to then 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 Shanahan took over ninety five to oh wait yeah yeah because didn't Shanahan Shanahan went to Oakland I think or whatever the yep. Raiders were at that point yeah but yeah so I, I I think that his career would probably have a much stronger legacy if he had won at least one title and especially if they'd not gotten blown out in every single every yeah. single Super Bowl that he brought them to plus the Falcons got blown out that was a really boring 98 Super Bowl with, with them in Atlanta so that wasn't with them in Denver I should say so that wasn't a great Super Bowl either so you know winning as coach it's not a member of the Hall of Fame I, there's been definitely a trend towards letting some of these more I don't say mediocre but these coaches who won a lot but didn't necessarily uh win a lot of championships or in his case win any championships I mean whether it's uh, Vermeil getting in last year, I think is the perfect example, or Cower, who only ever won the one Super Bowl. So my guess is that Dan Reeves gets in a co- as a coach into the Hall of Fame. And I do have to say that that one year that he coached the Giants in 93 and last year for Sims and LT, that was a fun year. That was that was kind of a there was a lot of a lot of misery that came in the ensuing four or five years. But that one year, that was a fun kind of rejuvenated Giants team coming out of the Ray Hanley years. Yeah, and he came in, he started bringing a bunch of Broncos in. People, you know, were calling them the New York Broncos, guys like David Treadwell. But yeah, it was, you know, unfortunately, every, really, every year of the Reeves tenure, the Giants got worse to watch. I guess you could debate whether the 95 or 96 team was worse. But, um, you know, a lot of that wasn't his fault. The team was getting old. The game had kind of passed the front office by at that point. But, um, you know, it was just growing up. That's what I associated him with. And unfortunately, I think that's probably the thing he'd uh, least like to be remembered for. So it was that era. And he won't be uh, other than other than, the mo- than among we giant fans. So. Dan Reeves, maybe not a great all-time great coach, but a very good coach and one who I think will probably be in Canton one day. And you got to respect the longevity. Yeah, absolutely. I think like 27 seasons as an NFL head coach or something like that. Just crazy. Mm-hmm. So. All right. So uh, we are on to our second honoree and our first guest. And we're going to talk about Don Maynard, who was born in 1935 and died on January 10th. A Hall of Fame wide receiver, Maynard was the first player to sign with the New York Titans, later the Jets, in 1960, and stayed with the team until his retirement in 1972. With the drafting of Joe Namath in 1965, Maynard embarked on a string of all-pro seasons and started started for the Jets and Coach Wee Bubank in their legendary Super Bowl III win over the Baltimore Colts. Interestingly enough, Maynard had also played against the Colts and Eubank in the 1958 NFL Championship game as a member of the New York Giants. And we are pleased to have with us the president of the Professional Football Researchers Association joined us last year to talk about a couple guys and is back again this year. George Bozica. George, thanks so much for joining us and thanks for doing this again. Sure. Enjoyed it last year and I look forward to it again this year. So um, what stands out to you about Don Maynard? What is it? Um, you know, we growing up in New York, you know, Giants fans, but kind of that 68 Jet team has a very sort of unique legacy in the mind of the New York sports fan, but as sort of a neutral observer, what is it that stands out about Don Maynard to you? I I think the fact that when he retired, he was the leading receiver 
in NFL history at that time. He he retired with 633 receptions and over 11,000 yards receiving, 11,834, which basically led all of the NFL upon his retirement. He was number one in receptions, number one in receiving yards. He was second behind Don Hudson in touchdowns with 88. I think that's the thing that stands out to me is, is that just what a great receiver he was. And, and obviously you mentioned the tandem with him and, and Namath was one of the great, you know, quarterback receiver tandems, you know, of all time in the NFL and definitely of the 60s. He was one of these guys who kind of got his start in the NFL and he was um, perhaps his original sort of noteworthy um, was I think the very first game of, or sorry, the very first play of the 58 title game, he was who they kicked off to. And so he's, he appears when you watch the video of that game, he's there. And then like a lot of these guys didn't, didn't go so well for him in the NFL. He gets cut. I think he was playing in, in the Canadian league or something for a year. And then when, when the, when the AFL comes along, the number of available spots in professional football essentially doubles. And so he is the very first player taken by the New York Titans, later the Jets, as we said, and languishes for those first few years. And then finally Namath comes along and the first conversation they have, Namath gets to his first training camp. He says, um, Maynard says to Namath, he says, I'm going to make you a better quarterback and you're going to make me a great receiver. We're going to have the timing down so good. You are going to be able to make it blindfolded and um they do they lead the jets to their only title in franchise history and like you said certainly surpassed by quite a few guys when you know the 60s 70s 80s you know 90s as they progress but he at the time of his retirement has got a super bowl ring he's on his way to the hall of fame and he is the leading receiver in the history of the nfl yeah, you know, he did. He had very humble beginnings. He uh, came out of Texas, El Paso, drafted by the Giants in 57. The Giants had won the uh, NFL championship in 56. So this was, you know, this was a great Giants team. You know, you had, you know, Gifford, you had, you know, Kyle Rote, uh, you know, a number of, you know, Hall of Famers on that team. And he was basically playing behind Gifford and Rote. And, because of that, he was used as a return specialist. And as you said, you know, sort of famously, he did play in the 1958 title game, the, the game that's quote unquote the greatest game ever played. Uh, but he was really, you know, sort of a almost a cameo type of appearance. But he was a return specialist for the Giants that year. As you said, he was cut by the Giants. He spent a year in the uh, CFL with Hamilton, actually played in a Grey Cup game, the <laughs> CFL wow. championship. They lost. And then, as you said, you know, he became – you know, a member of the Titans, Sammy Ball, then the great quarterback was the Titans coach. And he remembered Maynard because Maynard had played against him when he coached, you know, in college, you know, he was impressed by Maynard then. And, you know, albeit those first couple of years, the Titans weren't very good. You know, Sonny Werblin then uh, sort of a sports impresario bought the team, you know, invested some money, realized that he needed somebody big to, you know, fit that bill in New York. So he, you know, he, he did pick up Joe Namus, signed him to that huge contract. And, you know, that's really when things got started, but, you know, Maynard wasn't unusual in that. There was a lot of guys that, you know, just weren't making it in the NFL for whatever reason. They basically got new life when the AFL started, as you said, 
And, and Maynard was one of those guys who went on to have a Hall of Fame career. And it's just, you know, just amazing. And yeah, he did play in two of the most significant games. He also played in the Super Bowl three, which the Jets, you know, obviously won to, you know, sort of solidify the AFL as a viable league against the NFL. Interestingly, though, he didn't catch a pass in that game. He he was hurt and he was basically used as a decoy. And they said he was an important decoy because early in the game, they sent him on a long pass and they didn't complete the pass. But the point was, is that they knew Maynard was on the field and the Colts had to deal with him. And that's basically because George Sauer actually had the better game as a receiver in that game. who was one of, you know, name us other great receivers that he had. But Maynard was actually, you know, just a decoy. Maynard actually had the great game in the AFL championship game that year uh, against the Raiders. That's, that's what he is more known for in that run to the Super Bowl. Six catches for 118 yards and two touchdowns in that AFL title game. Uh, yeah. Prece- yeah. Immediately preceding Super Bowl three. Right. Yeah. It pl- they played at a Chase Stadium Raiders. Uh, who were quarterbacked by the Mad Bomber, Daryl LaMonica, and Namath, you know, two gunslinger-type quarterbacks. Neither one of them, as I recall, I don't think completed 50% of their pass that day. Shea Stadium was, you know, famously windy that day. Uh, And actually, Maynard felt that he made the greatest catch of his career in that championship game. They were down late in the game, and Namath threw a long, oh, they said about 50-yard pass to Maynard. And it was supposed to be uh, to his outside shoulder, but the wind pushed it to his inside shoulder. So he had to adjust while the ball was in the air as the ball's, you know, the wind's blowing the ball. He made the catch, went out on the six-yard line. On first down from there, Namath ran a play-action pass, hit Maynard for the game-winning touchdown. And Maynard always said that long pass that he caught from Namath, he felt was the greatest catch he made in his whole career. Certainly hard to be would be hard to beat it from a stature standpoint. So he remains to this day the all-time leader in Jets history in receiving yards. He's up by um over three thousand on Wesley Walker. He's the mm-hmm. all-time leader in receptions. Um leads Wayne Corbett by about fifty. And uh, let me just see if I can pull up the the touchdown numbers and he he's up by about 17 on Wesley Walker and third place. And that is also Corbett and he's only got 41. So he remains even now 50 years after his retirement, he remains far and away the leader in all of these categories. Now the jets have not had a lot of firepower in their passing game over the last 50 years. They've not had a great lot, great, lot of great receivers. They, frankly, haven't had a lot of great teams over the last since 1968 and certainly since guys like Maynard and Namath retired. But nonetheless, he is definitely worth noting and mentioning. He's one of five um, five retired numbers in Jets history alongside uh, Joe Klecko, Curtis Martin, Dennis Bird, a gentleman who was paralyzed, and, and of course, Namath. So he, I think you go to you go to Jet games even today. You still see a Maynard jersey, uh, stray Maynard jersey, even here and there once in a while. So I think it also comes at a time his career sort of spans an era where the position was evolving, even in the sense of what it was called. You know, you think of in the fifties, it was still an end, and 
in a lot of ways was a, um, yeah, they, they threw the ball, but it was certainly a, you know, it was still very much a, a running game and a, a receiver being a key focus of the offense were a little more few and far between. And then, you know, the story you told uh, when he first started playing with Namath, he, in that story, refers to himself as a receiver, which probably 10 years before that would not have been the, you know, the name. And I think that just kind of shows, especially in the AFL, the sort of evolution where the passing game was not purely a second or third option when other things weren't working. You could use that as a focal point of an offense and having a receiver like Maynard was a key cog in that wheel. You know, I think it was the thing that sort of made the AFL was they had so many great quarterbacks Mm -hmm. and so many great receivers that they did really, you know, open it up. You know, I remember the documentary about them calling it sort of, you know, full color football, you know, and it really was, you know, and, and, you know, it was interesting. We Bubank coached the Colts and famously in the 58 title game and one, and he also coached the Jets in 68. And he had a great receiver of the Coles, Ray Barry. And he was once asked to compare Barry and Maynard because with name with Maynard finishing at the top of the heap when he retired, Barry was right behind him. And he said, you know, Barry was the type of guy that ran these great routes, caught the ball. That was it. He said with Maynard, he would catch the ball. And because of his speed, he would just break it. You know, he, he was hard to bring down because he just had that great speed. You know, I, it's funny because I, I grew up during that jet era and I, I remember the I remember the Super Bowl, but the one game I remember Maynard was sort of his last hurrah game in 72. The Jets played the Raiders on Monday Night Football. And that was when I know we have Monday Night Football then, but it wasn't the same. It's not mm-hmm. the same. Back then, it was the thing. We didn't have games on Sunday. We didn't have games on Saturday. You know, mm-hmm. Monday Night Football was a big deal back then. And the Raiders and the Jets played name of the LaMonica again. And Namath threw for 403 yards that night because he basically didn't have a running attack. And that was actually the last game Namath played that year because he sat out the next week because they were out of the playoff picture. But it was really sort of Maynard's last hurrah with the Jets because that was his last season with them. He got seven balls for 131 yards that night. And I just remember watching the game on TV and how Maynard just kept getting open for Namath. And you know, they, the Raiders knew they were going to pass because that's all they had that night. But yet they kept completing pass after pass. And they ended up losing 24 to 16. But it was just an amazing game. You know, John Madden always said the best quarterback that he played against was Joe Namath. And that just those two guys and watching them work, it was just amazing. And it really was sort of a match made in heaven between the two right from the Right from the first day, two Hall of Famers, two uh, AFL and Super Bowl three champions, Joe Namath and Don Maynard. George will be back with us a little later um, in the episode. Fact, actually, probably uh, will be the next episode, uh, the way we're planning to divide it up. But George Bozica, president, Professional Football Researchers Association. Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll talk to you again later in the episode. Thanks. Look forward to it. All right. Well, you're back with uh, with just Andrew and me, and I think it's time to move to the ice hockey rink. And Andrew, do you want to introduce our next individual? Certainly. Clark Gillies, born in 1954, passed away on January 21st. A member of the Hockey Hall of Fame, Gillies played 12 years with the New York Islanders and was part of what many consider to be the greatest NHL dynasty of all time that won four consecutive Stanley Cups from 1980 to 1983. Gillies was twice named an NHL All-Star. 
I uh, editorialized a little with the greatest dynasty of all time. Um, yes, you the did. Greatest, yeah. The greatest four-year run, five-year run of all time, if you don't count the, the Canadiens uh, stretch. But no, Gillies was uh, was one of the... Um, when you go to the to the Nassau Coliseum and, and for a long or now, I guess the UBS arena, but when I remember going to the Nassau Coliseum when I was first in high school and seeing all the banners, and it, it was all pretty much guys from that era. And you'd look at the retired jerseys, and it was Potvin, Bossy, Trottier, Nystrom, Gillies. Uh, and Gillies was, you know, one of the uh, the signature guys on that team. I have a book here on the 1980 New York Islanders, which was the first one that won the cup. Uh, it's called Birth of a Dynasty. I have two different books called Birth of a Dynasty. Yes, uh, this one's about the night. And we have a different. Mine's got a different cover. Dan just held up his cover. Mine's got the cover from right after the game when a goal was scored. But um, you know, I was just looking through some of the pages uh, the other day and. Gillies had a reputation. So in that that year, that their second round series against the Bruins, who you know had been a really good team throughout the seventies and had a reputation as a very tough team, which a lot of teams had back then. There's a, a little section I'll read here. It talks about uh, the pits were where the game gets down and dirty. There's no better way to describe game two. Gillies had to know it was coming. Of course he did. In the series opener, he put a little something extra into a hit on Bruins star forward Rick Middleton, who throughout his career always had more goals than penalty minutes. He wasn't a tough guy. The Bruins were livid. And it just talks about this uh, huge uh, fight between Gillies and O'Reilly. And it just, you know, this whole book sort of talks about Gillies as a guy who was especially in a playoff series of which the Islanders played 20 in that five-year period was, you know, he was a skilled player. He wasn't a goon, but he was a guy who would step up and, and do some of the dirty work, whether it was fighting or, or hard hitting, you know, cause you don't want to get some of your, your biggest scorers involved in that stuff and possibly get hurt or just be off the ice for five minutes. He had a series of fights with Terry O'Reilly of the mm-hmm. Bruins throughout the, that sort of era when they were playing each other and meeting in the playoffs. And you said they what they played twenty playoff series in what five years? Yeah, because they they went to five straight Stanley Cups. They won four of them, and then they lost the fifth one in the finals to uh, to Edmonton. So twenty playoff series. Yeah, he was part of what they called the trio grand uh, with uh, Mike Bossy and Brian Trottier, and ironically, two of those Bossy and Gillies both died this year. And we'll talk about Bossy in a little bit. He was like you said, he was kind of the muscle guy, not a goon, but he was sort of you know maybe not a, the classic idea of an enforcer, but that type of guy. And one of his teammates, Butch Goring said, quote, he made life easier for everyone who played with him. Trottier and bossy could do what they wanted to do because they had the big guy on the wing. So, and he was one of these guys. I feel like everybody just seemed to really like him. His teammates liked him yes. and just a really, I think he was kind of around the team for most of his life, if I'm not mistaken. And he had actually been the captain in the late 70s for a couple of years, and he relinquished it because he felt like the responsibilities were, you know, just weighing too much on him. And he wasn't doing a good job either as a captain or as a player. And he relinquished it, but um, obviously shows that he was a guy who was respected within the locker room to A, be named captain and then B, to give it up and have that not be an issue because he truly was doing it to put the team first. 
So it's uh, a tough year for the Islanders um, with a couple of these guys from the early 80s passing away, but an opportunity. One last thing on Gillies. Um, he uh, made some headlines in 1980 when he got the cup for 24 hours. I was just about he to let tell him- this story. He let his dog uh, eat from the Stanley Cup, and the quote was, why not? He's a good dog. (laughs) Well, as a dog owner, I can endorse and support that. So, Clark Gillies. Have you ever let Thumper eat from the Stanley Cup? If I ever were to get from the Stanley Cup, I would absolutely allow Thumper to eat from it whenever he he wanted. So Tremendous. (laughs) All right. So, Clark Gillies, and uh, we'll we'll be back, and we'll uh, touch on one of his Islander teammates later on in the show. All right. So moving on and let's talk about Bill Fitch, who was born in 1932 and died on February 2nd. Fitch coached 25 years in the NBA for five different teams, leading each to the playoffs at least once. His greatest successes came with the Boston Celtics, who he led to an NBA championship over the Houston Rockets in 1981. Five years later, Fitch was on the other side of the court, leading the Rockets against the Celtics in the 86 NBA finals. In 1997, Fitch was named one of the 10 greatest coaches in NBA history. We are lucky enough to have yet another guest. We have another Sports History Network host on with us, Rick Loiza, who hosts Basketball History 101 on the Sports History Network, is joining us to talk about Bill Fitch, and you'll hear from him again uh, later on to talk about another gentleman. But Rick, uh, it's good to see you, and thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being part of what you're doing here for the end of the year, uh, you know, honoring those that we've lost in 2022. It's a, uh, just happy to be help, helping and be a part of it. And we appreciate it. This is, I think, our largest endeavor. We, we Andrew and I started two years ago when we first did this in 2020. And um, I think I was able to get a couple guys to jump on for a little while to talk. And we're up to, we're up to six this year. And we're actually Andrew and I kind of our schedules didn't match up. And so we haven't always been able to do everybody together, but we were able to get you. You're the last one we're recording and we're able to get all six guys on with both of us. So this has been really fun. This has kind of become like the flagship of what we do every year. And it's kind of our big contribution to the, to the sports history network. So Bill Fitch, um, this is an interesting guy. And I think Andrew and I have actually even had this conversation before the guy in 1997 was named to the top 10 list of all-time NBA coaches in the, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary, even though I think he's got a losing record all time, but he was still considered one of the 50 greatest coaches or sorry, one of the 10 greatest coaches in the first 50 years of the NBA. So maybe not an all-time great coach. And I I'm right about that. He was nine forty four and 1106. So sub 500 for his career, but won a title, took another team to the NBA finals, made it, uh, to the playoffs at least once with every team he coached. So a very interesting and varied career for Bill Fitch. Yeah, it was, like you said, I mean, greatest of all time. I'm not sure. He just definitely hung around longer than most coaches get to hang around 25 seasons. The head coach is definitely a long time. I will say this though, is he was the original coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers when they were an expansion team. So Mm -hmm. he suffered through some very rough seasons getting started, trying to get Cleveland off the ground as an expansion team. I think he only won 15 games that very first season with the expansion Cavs. So it's, uh, so if you kind of take away those couple of seasons, uh, you know, it doesn't look, it doesn't look so bad, but, um, but yeah, he was a guy that I think they used to call him in to basically fix the team. 
I mean, to what extent he actually did that, you know, people, you can, we can argue that, but it seems like he was always called in when a team was underperforming a lot of talent, maybe not as many victories. They fired the previous coach and then in comes Bill Fitch to try to fix things. And, uh, and like you said, I mean, he took everybody at least to one, one playoffs. So. And you meant, I think that's a really good point to mention that he started in the hole by coaching those Cavs teams in the seventies, those, Cavs teams in the 70s that had such a chaotic ownership that they had to change the rules about being able to trade draft picks so that uh, mm-hmm. yeah. to basically stop what was it? Stepien was his last name. And that uh, Fitch was actually the coach for the what was really the crowning achievement of that Cavs franchise until at least the late 80s. The uh, what they called the miracle at Richfield, the miracle. They yeah. won, they got out of the first round of the playoffs, and that was. <laughs> and, <laughs> Probably rightfully considered a miracle with what was going on with that team. It's not totally fair to base his career record on, you know, to look at his career record and not acknowledge that, yeah, he he started in quite an unfortunate hole because of uh, taking over an expansion team that was chaotically run, shall we say. Yeah, he had, I think he had a, a Walt Frazier who was on his last legs. He had a, he had Nate Thurman who was on his last yeah. legs. I mean, he, yeah, he really was, was just doing what he could with what he had in those first few years. And, but it was his first job in the NBA. So, I mean, coming from the college ranks, I think he was at the university of Minnesota when he, or I think he was at Minnesota when he got the call from the Cavs. Uh, so, I mean, you, have, you know, can't turn that down. Yeah, you're and you're absolutely right about that, Rick. He immediately his immediately preceding job was two years with Minnesota from 68 to 70. His career is kind of his coaching career. The two things that stand out to me the most are these two sort of what ifs. And the first what if is this early Celtics team, early 80s Celtics team. Like you said, he kind of came in late 70s, early 80s. It was after they had won the titles under Heinsohn and they were in a little bit of a lull and he comes in, he coaches them. It that they're, What a lot of people don't realize is in 1980, that is to say the 1980 playoffs of the 79-80 season, the Celtics are a really, really good team. I think they were, I think they were a 60-win team. In 79-80, they were 61-21 and and uh, this is his first year with the team, 61-21. and it's also Bird's rookie year, but this is not what you might think of as sort of the classic 80 Celtics. It's, you know, Dennis Johnson and Danny Ainge are a long way away. McHale's not in the league yet. Parrish is still in Golden State. This is Bird and Cowens together <laughs> on a front line, along with Cedric Maxwell. Pistol Pete Maravich is actually on this team as sort of in sort of a spot role and, and plays in the playoffs for them. I think he either joins the midseason. He plays like 40 games for them. So this is a very different team. And then in 81, Cowens retires. They make the big trade for for Parrish and they draft McHale with the with as you know, with the draft choice they get as a part of that trade. And that's when they really start to get hot. 81, Andrew and I have talked about this before. They They come back from 3-1 down. They beat the Celtics in the 81 um, Eastern Conference Finals game. Sixers. I'm sorry. Did I say they they beat the Celtics? No, that would be Mm -hmm. nonsensical. They beat the Sixers. My in-laws always talk about my my wife's parents, this 81 champion, that 81 game seven against Philly was like the most fun they've ever had at, at a basketball game there, you know, from Boston and Celtics fans. And then after winning in 81, 
he just his attitude starts to grate on the players. And even though they have an even better season in uh, 81, 82, they win 63 games, lose in the conference finals again, seven game series. This time they lose to Philly and then he has one more year in 83 and then they fire him and bring in the much more low key Casey Jones. But if his players had been able to stand him, he might have been the coach for all three of those Celtics championships in the 1980s. Yeah, definitely. And as I was looking through his his record, and I think kind of what you're speaking to has to do, I think, with his time in the Marines. So he graduates from college. I think it was in 54. And then uh, he spent two years in the Marines as a drill instructor and then came out of the Marines and then took his first uh, head coaching job. I think he started one year at a high school before moving into the college ranks. But I got to imagine, but he was known for running those very tough uh, high discipline practices. And as I think it's that sort of Marine military approach that he took. And, and I, I think most, most teams, especially if they're struggling, will appreciate that for a year or maybe two years, but then it starts to wear on you. I think, I don't, I don't think that most NBA players can, can take kind of the, the military approach for too long. Uh, and that's where he probably kind of wore out as welcome, but you're right. He could have been there for all three of those eighties championships uh, with the Celtics. And by 83, the team is basically in open rebellion against him. Quinn Buckner (laughs) says, I've never been on a team where there was an active mutiny like that. Buckner recalled decades later, he said it was embarrassing. I was like, geez, they hate this guy. (laughs) So (laughs) they really did. I think they, and this is the relatively recent book by Dan Shaughnessy on those 80s Lakers teams. Shaughnessy tells a story of, ML Carr, who wants to bring his son along on the team bus. And I think, Rick, this kind of gets back to what you were saying about this sort of military discipline and rules and tight ship. Carr or Fitch won't let Carr's son ride on the bus. So he has to walk his son up to the press bus and say, uh, my son, Michael, has to ride with you guys to the uh, to the game or wherever it is they're going back from the game, you know, back to the hotel, whatever it is, because Fitch is running such a tight ship. Now, Larry Bird disagrees when they get rid of Fitch in 84. And I was actually surprised by this because I had always heard that a big reason that Fitch went out of Boston was because Bird couldn't stand him. But Bird actually gives a quote. He says, basically, um, someday you'll look back and realize Bill Fitch was the best coach for this team. So Bird, who obviously is a disciplined guy, he likes Fitch, or at least he doesn't want to see him go, but he, he rubs his guys the wrong way. And I, I think you're right. I think it's hard to say it was the wrong decision because right after they fire him, they win a championship. They win another one two years later. Celtics become a very veteran team. Bird gets older, Parrish, McHale. They trade for Dennis Johnson. Uh, Walton comes in as a free agent for a year or two. So probably a guy like Casey Jones, who'd been an NBA player himself, had been a Celtic, understood that mentality was probably a better fit for the Celtics long-term, I would have to say. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, Casey Jones, exactly. Having been a player, having won a bunch of rings, being part of that Celtics family. The one thing I will say about the Celtics organization is they do a great job of keeping their veterans connected to the organization. You know, the, the Celtics, they have the kind of, I think it's, they still do it like an annual 
reunion of all their championship veterans every summer or something like that, where they, they keep those guys in contact. So bring back Casey Jones, make him the head coach. He understands, you know, that the superstars need to lead. He was probably willing to give bird and Parrish and Dennis Johnson a little more leeway in what happens with the team. Cause he knows those are smart guys. He knows that, uh, you know, Larry bird probably knew as much basketball as he did at that point. And then I think the other thing that bears mentioning we're talking about Fitch is he leaves the Celtics and ends up in Houston. And then mm-hmm. just as they're drafting Ralph Sampson and then Akeem Olajuwon and this team beats the Lakers in the conference finals in 1986 in what is not a particularly close series. I think it's a five game series. And then they, they play Boston lose in six and then Basically, as quickly as this all came together, it essentially falls apart. Sampson gets hurt the following year. Eventually, they end up trading Sampson. I think uh, John Lucas, uh, who had been a guard with the team, has a drug issue. I think there might be drug issues with a couple other guys. Akeem becomes sort of a malcontent for the late 80s and early 90s until he has a renaissance in his own career. And this is the only non-Laker team to make it to the NBA finals from the Western conference between 1982 and 1989. And that rocket team tends to kind of get lost in the shuffle. But for one year, everybody really thought this was the new hot thing in the NBA and it's only injuries and some other off the court issues that really derail it. But everybody thought the rockets had taken over the West from the six or from the Lakers rather when they win that Western conference finals in 86. Oh yeah. They had that, that twin towers. You said with, with Samson and, and Olajuwon, he was seven. Sim, uh, Samson was, I think seven, three. Uh, Olajuwon was, I think officially six eleven. but let's just call him a seven footer for this conversation. I was remember reading uh, an old article from sports illustrated back in the eighties. And right around that time, 85, 86, the, the article said that there were now 19 seven-footers in the NBA, almost a seven-footer for each team. 23 teams, 19 guys, and the Rockets had two of them. And that was, I mean, it's all, but you can't teach height, right? That's mm-hmm. what they say. You can't teach height. So to, so to have basically 14 feet of front court, of excellent all-star level front court, at least until Samson's knees went out on him. But to have that level of front court was just incredible. I mean, they were supposed to take on Mikhail and Parrish and I don't know, whatever other front court duo you could think of, probably just Mikhail and Parrish at that point. But yeah, that was the future. That was what, if social media existed back then, that all you'd see was posts of, of Samson and Olajuwon as the, the next great duo. This doesn't relate to Fitch really, but it's kind of funny to think about that in 1986, when you would have said, oh, the Rockets will be the next Western Conference team to win a championship, like besides the Lakers, they, they actually were. It was just, it's, you know, it was it was eight years longer than uh, longer than anybody would have anticipated. But they ninety four was the next non Lakers Western Conference team to win a title. So it was, yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, they finally had to rebuild it way after Fitch was gone with Tom Janovich. Now, where did Fitch go after Houston? Because we we said he made the playoffs what five times. Well, he made five- the play- well, more than five. He made at least at least one with each of the five teams. So mm-hmm. see, he gets so after Houston, he ends up. I can't remember the, the order. It's either with New Jersey. He goes to the Nets after that. He's the Nets yeah. coach immediately before 
Chuck Daly in the early 90s. 91-92 is his last go. year with the Nets. And it's been that's Petrovich and Derek Coleman and Kenny Anderson and those guys sort of starting to join the team that would become uh, sort of the Nets of the mid-90s. We actually did an episode way back when, about two years ago, on those 90s New Jersey Nets with my friend Abe. And so he goes there and then he finishes out his career. And this is where I remember him. I remember him with the Clippers. And I would just, you know, Clippers, you know, they think this was like the Danny Manning era Clippers. Yeah. Not very good, but he manages to get in. This maybe doesn't deserve too much credit. At a, at 36 and 46 in 96, 97, they make the Western Conference playoffs and get swept 3-0 in the first round. But hey, he, By he Utah? Made it. Uh, you know, let me check that. My guess is it probably would have been Utah. <laughs> I feel like I remember that series. Yep. 3-0 to Utah in 96, <laughs> 97. So, um, yeah, a couple of different what ifs. I want to kind of put a put a mark on this. Bill Simmons in his book of basketball, which is is now about 15 years old. Um, He talks about what happens with this rocket team after 86. He says the following year, um, both Samson and Akeem wanted new contracts. They trade John Lucas to Milwaukee. Lucas has got some drug issues, so they, they want to give him a fresh start. They suffer uh, cocaine suspensions um, for both Lewis Lloyd and Mitchell Wiggins. By the 87 All-Star break, three of their best, their three best guards are gone. Samson had fallen. Uh, interestingly enough, he had fallen. I think it was in a regular season game at the Boston Garden. His injuries uh, start to surface to his back and his hip. He starts having to run a little bit differently. They finally trade him to Houston or to Golden State for Joe Barry Carroll and Sleepy Floyd. And this is what Simmons says, and I think it's kind of worth quoting it a little bit at length here. He says, here's the best way to put Houston's demise in perspective. Let's say the Pistons fell apart after the 86 playoffs because Isaiah's need betrayed him and Dennis Rodman, Vinnie Johnson, and John Sally were all kicked out of the league for cocaine. What happens? The Celtics probably play in at least two more finals. Maybe they steal one or both. Maybe Jordan wins eight titles instead of six. Maybe Dominique and the Hawks sneak into the finals one year. And that's sort of his analog in the Western Conference. If Samson doesn't get hurt, if this Rocket team doesn't fall apart, maybe the Lakers win a couple less. The Blazers never get in. Um, all of these teams that maybe late made it in in the late 80s and early 90s get shoved aside by this Twin Towers team of Samson and Elijah Wan. So another what if in the career of Bill Fitch. Um Rick, you're going to be back to join us uh, in a little bit to talk about Bob Lanier. But before we let you go here, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast on the Sports History Network, uh, Basketball History 101. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. So Basketball History 101, we put out a new episode every Tuesday and just find a, a different story from basketball history, whether it's kind of in the NBA from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Occasionally, we'll go all the way back into the 20s and 30s, uh, 1920s and 1930s to, to look at what professional basketball looked like prior to the NBA. So we've got, uh, you know, all throughout, if you want to hear basketball history, how the game developed. We have an episode on the history of the dribble, the history of the jump shot, uh, that kind of thing. And um, uh, as I say at the beginning of every episode, we're bringing old school basketball to a new school audience. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've, I've heard that when I've listened to your show, I've heard that intro and I, I really like that. And yeah. You really kind of, kind of get, uh, get all over the place with it, which we like. And like I said, there's not a lot of, um, not a lot of basketball specific uh, content on the, on the, um, on the network. So we definitely are glad to have you be a part of it. 
Rick, uh, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we will hear from you again uh, in a little bit. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rick. Yeah, thanks. All right. So moving right along, uh, Andrew, do you want to read the name of our next honoree? Sure. Uh, Charlie Taylor, born in 1941, passed away on February 19th. A Hall of Fame wide receiver with the Washington Redskins, Taylor began his career as a running back and won Rookie of the Year honors in 1964. Moving to receiver in 1966, he retired as the NFL's all-time leader in receptions in 1977. In 1972, Taylor's two touchdowns over Dallas in the NFC title game propelled the Redskins to their first ever Super Bowl appearance. And we are lucky to have another one of our fellow hosts on the Sports History Network here joining us today. Uh, Dana Auguster from the Historically Speaking Sports podcast. Thanks for joining us. Dana's going to you're going to hear him in and out uh, talking about a few different people uh, over the next couple of episodes. But Dana, thanks for doing this again with us this year. And thank you for joining us. Man, thank you so much for having me back. Uh, I'm really honored and privileged to be invited back to talk about these guys. And um, hey, let's do it. I mean, this is these guys right here. I know a lot about off offhand because I've been, you know, studying up on them over the last few years and um, is unfortunate to hear the date of their passing. And um, I'm just so thankful and honored to be invited back with you guys to talk about them. So let's start with Taylor. Um, tell us a little bit about Charlie Taylor. First of all, tell us about him. And then what was it that made him be somebody you wanted to come on and discuss with us? Well, Charlie Taylor, I think, in my opinion, is one of the more underrated, great NFL receivers because he played at a time with a team that was primarily a running team. You know, you had Larry Brown, who was their running back. You had James Haraway, who was their fullback. And at the time, his coach, um, George Allen, was a very was a proponent of the run. Of course, Washington in the early 70s, they had the Over the Hill Gang, which is a team that they're not my favorite team, obviously, with, you know, as, as Washington went, but they were a team that I found very interesting to learn a lot about and read about. And offensively, Charlie Taylor was the centerpiece of that passing attack. You had Taylor on one side and then you had Roy Jefferson on the other side. You know, and you had um uh I can't think of the the, the, the tight end's name off offhand, but uh, they were a very, very interesting team to kind of like look at and, and, and read about it. And it's of course, you know, the early 70s, I was born in 73. So obviously I didn't see them play like talking about, but I just find that team very interesting with the cast of characters that was on the team and George Allen himself being the type of coach that he was. I just found that team very interesting and offensively. Charlie Taylor was the centerpiece of that of that uh, offense. Looks like the tight end was a guy named Jerry Smith. Jerry Smith. Um, that, yeah, Jerry yep. Smith. Yes. Yeah, he was there 65 to 77. So quite a bit of overlap with Taylor. There are a lot of interesting characters sort of associated with those late 60s, early 70s, Washington Redskin teams. First of all, George Allen almost wasn't the coach or there was an alternative history where he wouldn't have been the coach because in 69, Vince Lombardi comes takes over the Redskins, leads them to their first winning season in however many years it had been. 
And then he tragically gets cancer, passes away. And then George Allen, I don't believe Allen took directly over. I think there was a gap year. I think there was a gap, but I can't think of the coach's name in between there. It was an assistant coach. I think it was Bill Austin. Bill Austin. He was, he he took, he took over and for uh, in between Lombardi and then they hired George Allen away uh, from, from the Rams, whoever the Rams had fired him and replaced him with Tommy Protho and then, then Allen took over, and that's when everything kind of took off for, for, for the Redskins. But what's interesting is the fact that his quarterback, uh, Charlie Taylor's quarterback, for most of his career was Sonny Jurgensen. You know, everybody, you know, thinks about you know, the over-the-hill gang, and you think of Kilmer, you know, but most of the time it was actually Sonny Jurgensen, which is another very underrated quarterback, I think, because a lot of people, when they talk about great quarterbacks, Sonny Jurgensen isn't named all that much. And the reason why, I believe, is because that the Redskins had sub-500 sub records throughout most of his career with the Redskins. And, you know, and his favorite target was, um, was, was Charlie Taylor. Yeah, and in fact, as we mentioned, Taylor started as a running back. And I right. watched video last night on... Taylor, sort of a little brief, you know, five minute synopsis of his career. And Jurgensen says that the strength of Charlie Taylor, that, you know, sort of he had more of the running back's body, that strength made it harder for cornerbacks to cover him. It created sort of a mismatch. That's right. I mean, if you look at film of him during the 60s and early 70s, you notice that he would catch, say, like a like a seven yard square in catch it in the middle of the right in between it in that zone between the linebackers and defensive backs. And he would make like about four or five moves and he would just make people miss and pushing people off and spin moves and everything. And he kind of like invented quote unquote yak yards, you know? And Mm -hmm. if I had to compare him, which I love to do, I love to compare like old guys to guys that are playing now. If you had to compare him to someone that's playing now, the first name I would think of, of course, being in Atlanta, is Cordero Patterson mm-hmm. for the Falcons. And he's a lot like him. You know, he's he's a Cordero Patterson is a receiver, but he's not built like one. You know, he's built like a like a tailback, like a bigger tailback. And that's how Charlie Taylor played, but he played way back in the 1960s and early 70s, which gave him you know, a little bit of an advantage because he was stronger and bigger than most cornerbacks at the time. Because cornerbacks at the time was like anywhere between five, ten, six feet, you know, sort of. They weren't big guys, but he had the strength to move them out of the way and stiff arm them whenever he got those quick passes from from Jurgensen. And his career is sort of a, a trip through kind of in a little bit the history of the franchise. He when he first got to the team, he was mentored by Bobby Mitchell, famous yes. Hall of Fame wide receiver in his own right, who's also well known for being the guy who integrated the Washington Redskins in the early 1960s, 62, I think it was. And then this is something that I didn't realize until I was researching him over the last couple of days he was the Redskins wide receiver coach from 81 all the way until 1994 and that's that's the golden age or at least the modern golden age you know the golden age post Sammy Baugh of the Washington franchise (laughs) and that's all those other wide receivers Art Monk who's in the Hall of Fame and Ricky Sanders and some of those other guys so he went all the way from being mentored by Bobby Mitchell, who was sort of a pioneer on the team, all the way up all through the Joe Gibbs era and, you know, 
all those many quarterbacks, Theismann, Williams, Rippon that they had. And he was he was a part of that team, got three Super Bowl rings and as, as an assistant coach. So really a guy who saw a lot in the history of that Washington franchise. Well, he was dra- he was picked by Joe Gibbs to be their receivers coach in 81 after being a scout with the aforementioned Bobby Mitchell. They were scouts right after that he retired. He became a Washington Redskins scout and then later became an assistant coach, a wide receivers coach. Now, you got to also remember that he coached the Smurfs, mm-hmm. the, the wide receiver core in the early 80s with Virgil Say and Charlie Brown and Alvin Garrett, you know, along with Monk and then later Gary Clark, Ricky Sanders, Clint Didier, the tight end. He coached all of those guys and eventually got his Super Bowl rings, but not as a player, but as a coach. And you remember in their 70s, the Redskins were a perennial playoff team. And Andrew had mentioned earlier about the 1972 NFC Championship game, which he labels as his greatest game, catching two touchdown passes to beat the rival Dallas. They blew them out at RFK Stadium. He catches a long, like a 45-yard touchdown pass from Billy Kilmer down the far sideline at RFK. And that really put the game out of reach for, for the Redskins to give them their first Super Bowl appearance against the Dolphins, which were perfect that year. That's really, too, if you think about you know, at that point, my brother sort of invoked the post Sammy Ball era. So we'll do the same thing here. Up until those early 80s teams, this was the biggest Redskin victory in, you know, of a 50 year span. Not only are you getting to the fir- your first Super Bowl, but you're beating the Cowboys who were what did the Cowboys made the last two Super Bowls before that? Yes. And gold standard in the NFC and would continue to be for most of the 70s. But yeah, that's, I mean, certainly between, you know, the 40s and probably the 82 NFC Championship game, that was the most significant win in the franchise's history in that stretch. And he was, I know they didn't give the MVP out back then for a championship game, but he probably would have been the MVP of that game if they had had such a thing. I mean, absolutely. He was, I mean, you know, I mean, like I said before, I mean, that team offensively had a lot of weapons for Billy Kilmer because Billy Kilmer became the quarterback, was the quarterback in that game. Uh, he replaced Jurgensen, I think, toward the be- middle of that season. Jurgensen was injured. And, you know, he had uh, he had broke his ankle in one game and he and Kilmer had could took over and the team just caught fire after that happened. And uh, from that point on, you know, in, in the NFC Championship game, I mean, Charlie Taylor was, was I'm think, I think I think I have his stats for that game. He was, he had seven catches for 146 yards with two touchdowns, including a 45-yard touchdown pass from Kilmer. So that was by far his greatest game for, like you said, Drew, the quintessential great game in Redskins history between the time of Sammy Ball in the 1930s and 40s, you know, all the way through to the 82 NFC Championship game, which they beat Dallas at RFK Stadium once again, you know. So, and, and of course, beating Dallas in the playoffs that year, beating Dallas at all for Redskins team was the high watermark any year because that was, of course, Redskins, Cowboys, rivalries, like one of the best and most known in NFL history. I was just saying there's a lot of parallels with the the 80 Eagles, the same thing where, you know, in a, for a 30 to 40 year span, that was their big victory was the NFC championship game against Dallas in 1980, beating the Cowboys. And it was, you know, they were sort of the uh, the benchmark where if you got one from them, especially after years of them torturing you, 
which they did to everybody in that division in the 70s mm. that, that not only getting past them, but getting past them to get to a Super Bowl was the big deal for both of those franchises. That's right. That's right. And that was sort of the premier NFC East matchup of the 70s. Giants were terrible, as Andrew and I have mentioned several times, and Philly wasn't very good either. So Cowboys, Redskins, that was the NFC. And really kind of in a lot of ways, that was kind of, even though the Redskins only made one, it wasn't as if, you know, the Cowboys were the powerhouse of the NFC in the 1970s. They made, I don't, I would have to think through and count how many Super Bowls. I guess Minnesota would have been the other team in there. So, but yeah, that Redskin Cowboy, that was a big 70, rivalry. 70, 71, 74, 77, and 78, right? So, yes, so, five out of 10. Yeah, half of them. Half the decade, the, the Cowboys were in the Super Bowl from the NFC. And, one and they of the weren't te- on this one thanks to Charlie Taylor. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, Dana, thanks for joining us. Um, we won't uh, we won't linger with you here because uh, Dana will be back a few more times uh, over the next uh, couple hours. So, um, Dana, thanks for joining us and we will hear from you again soon. Looking forward to it, guys. All right. So uh, why don't we move on to baseball, our first baseball player of the Year And we're going to talk about Ralph Terry, who was born in 1936 and died on March 16th. A two-time All-Star with the New York Yankees, Terry surrendered Bill Mazeroski's famous home run in Game 7 of the 1960 World Series against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Two years later, Terry redeemed himself, leading the American League in wins and retiring Willie McCovey to win the World Series for New York in seven games over the San Francisco Giants. Terry was named MVP of the 1962 World Series. Two of the classic World Series in not just Yankee history, but in baseball history, 1960 and 1962. 1960, Yankee fans tend to know the story. The Yankees played the Pirates. Pirates, huge underdogs. I want to give you the scores here because it really kind of tells you the kind of series that it was. So just bear with me here for one quick second. All right, here we go. 1960 World Series Pirates against the Yankees. And keep in mind that the Yankees had basically been to the World Series almost every year, eight of the 10 years in the 1950s. They had missed it in 1959, but then came roaring back. 1960, which was Roger Maris first year in with the Yankees. So the 1960 World Series, Yankees lose game one, six to four. And then they win game two, 16 to three. They win game three, 10, nothing. Then they lose three, two, lose five, two, come back in game six to win 12, nothing. And then they lose in the epic World Series game seven to the Pirates when Ralph Terry gives up the home run to Mazeroski. The only World Series game in MLB history. Do you know, you know what this is? You know what it is? There's, there's something that doesn't happen in this World Series game. It's the only time it ever happens in World Series history. This is game seven of the 60 World Series. Yeah. Is it something like, was there not a base runner at any point in the game or something like that? There was no strikeout. Oh, okay. I knew it was something like. Yeah. Nobody, nobody struck out the entire game. And so they, the Yankees outscore the Pirates 55 to 27, but they lose the series 10 9, game seven score on this home run given up uh, by Ralph Terry to Bill Mazeroski. And Andrew and I have speculated that there's a good chance that if Bill Mazeroski doesn't hit that home run, that he probably doesn't make it into the baseball hall of fame. So of I don't think there's any event, doubt about that. I, so, well, you, so you don't think you think he's definitely not in. 
No. First of all, it took them like 40 years to put him in. And then they were like, well, he was good at defense. Like that, <laughs> that was that was their rationale. And I'm not even saying it's that big of a deal. Like, yeah, guy has one of the most famous moments of all time. Go ahead and put him in. But like, yeah, I think it's because of that play. Yeah. So Terry gives up this home run and everybody kind of realizes that Casey Stengel, who's been managing the Yankees since 1949, he's 70 years of age. Everybody kind of knows that if they lose the series, Stengel is probably going to be forced out the door and he's going to have to be retired. And so after the game, Terry walks over to Stengel and he says, Casey, I hate to have it end this way. And Stengel says, well, how are you operating? And what were you trying to throw him? And Terry says, I was trying to keep it low. And Casey says, well, as long as you were trying to pitch him the right way, I'm going to sleep easy at night. And Stengel, especially by this point, was not necessarily beloved by a lot of his players. But Terry did feel bad that his pitch might end up costing Stengel his job. Ralph Terry, very much kind of the classic Yankee um, story, comes up to the Yankees. (laughs) I think I know where you're going with this. Where do you think I'm going? The fact that they just traded him to Kansas City because yes. they wanted to get him as a minor league. This guy's not ready yet. Uh, we like his potential, so we'll just trade him to another team in our league <laughs> who we're illegally using as a farm system. <laughs> yeah, that was not good. And that I don't know, you know, basically the story is that for most of the sort of mid to late 1950s, the Yankees were just... Um, the Yankees would just kind of basically use Kansas city as a, as a farm system. And if they wanted somebody from the Kansas city roster, they'd get them. There's any number of guys who started with the Yankee system and then were with Kansas city for a year or two, and then came back to the Yankees, almost like they got called up to the big team. Terry actually gets traded in June of 57. He gets traded to the, Kansas City A's as part of the same deal that got rid of Billy Martin that shipped Billy Martin mm-hmm. out of town when they were had gotten tired of Martin and so he goes there in 57 but then in 59 he gets traded back from Kansas City to the Yankees and he becomes one of their key pitchers of the 1960s including in this this epic World Series loss of game 7 or of uh, 1960 I should say but he really rallies. Let me just give you a little bit of information here about Terry's Terry's 1962 season. It was his finest in the major leagues. He won 23 games, led American League pitchers in wins, innings pitched, and home runs allowed, and set personal highs in nearly every category. During the second half of the year, Terry was 16-5, and five, and his 23 wins were the most for a Yankee right-hander since 1928. Wade Hoyt had had that record, a Hall of Famer, in 1928. And so in another epic seven-game World Series, he finds himself on the mound against another Hall of Famer in Willie McCovey. Willie McCovey, who is a legit Hall of Famer in every sense of the word. And he entices McCovey to line out on a a hard-hit liner to Bobby Richardson. And two years after he is the GOAT and the losing pitcher in 1960, he is the hero and the series MVP of the 1962 World Series against the San Francisco Giants couple of uh, anecdotes I have here. Did you hear the at towards the end of his career, he was with the Mets and he pitched against Bill Mazeroski again. Terry's first pitch was over Mazeroski's head as a reminder <laughs> that he hadn't forgotten. Uh, he then retired the second baseman on a pop-up and said, when Terry traveled to Los Angeles, he ran into his old manager, Casey Stangle and said, Hey Casey, I got Mazeroski out. I pitched him low. And Stangle said, it's about time. 
He also, after he retired, he went and became a professional golfer. He was actually, I think, qualified and was able to play in a couple of PGA. Uh, eventually, I think originally regular PGA Tour. He wasn't a full-time member, but he won like enough a couple of regionals and was able to play. And then he played on the PGA. Um, he then played on the PGA Senior Tour for a while. But one thing I didn't know about him that I learned doing the research of this. Did you read or do you know about the thing when he signed? So this and this is a, a legit. This is from. Um, I'm going to assume this source is legit. It's on the internet, but it's, I don't think people are writing long articles about Ralph Terry to then uh, just like throw a lie in there in the beginning. But basically what happened was in 1953, he signed with the Yankees and then he signed with the Cardinals. (laughs) And it says the dispute ended up on the desk of commissioner Ford Frick. What happened was that Terry was scouted by Tom Greenway, who was also the guy who discovered Mickey Mantle. Mantle. Yeah. The young pitcher signed his mother's name on a telegram accepting the Yankees contract. Then a Cardinal scout visited, told him that wasn't binding and offered to sign him and have him assigned to nearby Omaha, which was close to where he grew up in Oklahoma. And he agreed. The Yankees accused St. Louis of tampering with the signed player. Frick determined that both teams acted in good faith, but the Terry's acceptance of the Yankees contract was binding. So uh, <laughs> he, he signed he signed to two teams in the course of a couple of weeks or a couple of days, whatever it was. Two quick stories about the 62 game seven, just to round it out. First of all, the night before the game, uh, they're out in San Francisco. And this was a World Series, by the way, where it rained for like three or four days. And so they were just sort of stuck out on the coast waiting for the, the World Series to resume. And so the night before game seven, Mantle Ford, Yogi Berra, Ralph Terry and Cleet Boyer are having a poker game, a high stakes poker game in Mickey Mantle's hotel room towards the end of the evening. Um, Yogi and Ralph are battling for several hundred dollars in the pot. Yogi, who many Yankees believed to be the luckiest man alive. The joke was always he could fall down in a sewer and come out holding a gold watch. He has a king high flush and Terry foolishly stays in the game, hoping for a spade flush an ace high flush and um, eventually gets it. Terry uh, gets it on the last card. And this is a classic book called Dynasty by Peter Golenbach about those Yankee years. And it says one at a time, Terry showed his spades three, five, ten, Jack and ace. As Terry gleefully raked in the chips, Barra across from him was mumbling swear words. Terry was saying, I beat Yogi. I beat Yogi, man. It's an omen. And he collected his $300, (laughs) collected his $300 and went to bed. And then the next day, He's on the mound, ninth inning against the Giants, and Matty Alou with the Yankees are up one nothing. Matty Alou is on on first base, and then Terry gets the next two batters out. Then Willie Mays steps into the batter's box. Mays gets a base hit to the opposite field. Roger Maris fields the ball and throws it in and manages to hold Alou up at third base. And a lot of people have always thought that Alou should have rounded third and tried to score, but there's runners on second and third and you got two more future hall of famers. So keep in mind, he's facing three of the greatest sluggers of all time, back to back to back Mays McCovey. And then Orlando Cepeda is on deck. So Ralph Houck comes out and says, basically, who do you want to pitch to? Do you want to pitch to McCovey or do you want to pitch to Cepeda? And because a base hit wins the game, you know, a single scores a Lou from third. It scores Willie Mays from second base. And 
That's that's it. That's two to one. That's the ball game. That's the World Series. And Terry chooses to pitch to McCovey because he want he doesn't want it to pitch too carefully. And so if he if he walks McCovey and then the bases are loaded, he's got to be worried about the tying run scoring on a walk. So he figures, let's pitch to McCovey. I have first base open. I can pitch carefully, but try and get him. And he does. McCovey rips it to second base. Richardson makes the stab. The Giants don't make it back to another World Series until 1989, so 27 years. Mm-hmm. That is the last World Series of World, World Championship of that great sort of Yankee run that started all the way back 40 years ago with Babe Ruth in 1923. That's what their what is that? Is that their 20th? That would have been 20, yeah, because they won two in the 70s, so they got that was 20, and they don't win another one for another 15 years. And Ralph Terry redeems himself in his best year as a Yankee. Why don't we move on? And Andrew, do you want to read our next entry? Sure. Uh, Rayfield Wright, born in 1945, died on April 7th. Wright started offensive tackle for the Dallas Cowboys from 1967 until 1979. During that time, he played in six Super Bowls or NFL championship games, winning two. Wright was named to six Pro Bowls in a row from 1971 to 1976 and was first or second team All-Pro each of those seasons as well. He was elected into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2006. He was uh, made it into five Super Bowls, won the two, like I said, kind of kind of is there for that whole run of the Cowboys. It's starting in the late 60s with the Don Meredith years. He's not a starter, but we talked about the um, the ice bowl. He is on the roster. He's a cowboy for the ice bowl in 1967. Plays in that game as a as a rookie, and then is with Dallas all the way up through basically the end of the run in 1979. He is part of the offensive line that leads uh, blocking for the first five 1,000 yard rushers in. Cowboy history. So that's Dwayne Thomas. That's Tony Dorsett, a leader on the offensive line of those teams for uh, basically the beginning of the 60s and the entire 70s. Um, Jerry Jones says uh, after Rayfield dies, he says Rayfield Wright was the epitome of what it takes to be a Hall of Famer. His grit, his agility, his passion, his charisma and his love for football, the community and his family always shined through. The thing I thought was interesting when I looked at this, um, so he played right tackle once he finally settled in. These days, we think of the left tackle as the most important position on the offensive line uh, for a team with a right-handed quarterback, which is most of them, because the left tackle protects the quarterback's blind side. I don't know when this changed, but back in this era, the right tackle was considered the most important offensive lineman. A, it was an era, obviously, where teams threw less, and B, you know, I don't know this the I'm sure I could look up the exact reasoning behind why it shifted, but um, you know that was considered the most important position on the offensive line, and it was where you ended up matched up with the other team's best pass rushers for the most part. He was small, or not small, but he was light. It was very like agile and light on his feet, and even though he was, this thing says he was kind of miscast at the beginning of his career as either a defensive end or a tight end because he was not built like offensive tackles were back then. So it took them a few years to realize, oh, this guy we're trying to mold into a tight end is actually our best 
our best offensive tackle. And once they corrected that mistake, he basically just sat in that position for the rest of the 1970s. He's on the 1970s NFL all decade team. So, you know, obviously a guy, let me just see who they have as the two tackles just for reference. He is an offensive tack. He is the one tackle on the all decade team for the 1970s. Do you know who the other one is? 70s. Hmm. The first team. There's a second team as well, but the first team. Uh, is it Yale Larry? Art Shell. Art Shell. Yeah. Well, that's good company. Roger yeah. Staubach then- says Rayfield was a big, strong guy that was able to transfer his size and strength from tight end to tackle, like you said, Andrew. He also had such quick feet that he was able to deal with some of the faster defensive ends and even the linebacker blitzes. If he ever got beat, I don't remember it. The Hall of Fame defensive end of the famous uh, Minnesota Vikings, Purple People Eaters, said, uh, quote, let me let me find this quote here. He says, an, an all-day fight with Rayfield Wright is definitely not my idea of a pleasant Sunday afternoon. So another great, great, you know, may, maybe the great Hall of Fame uh, defensive lineman is Deacon Jones of the, the Rams in the 60s and 70s. And as a young player, in his first start at offensive tackle, he goes up against Deacon Jones and Deacon Jones says, hey, boy, does your mama know you're out here? And Rayfield Wright says, what does my mama have to do with this? And um, (laughs) he's thinking he doesn't say that. I'm sorry. He's thinking that. And um, that distracted him enough to momentarily lose lose concentration when the ball was snapped. Jones promptly slaps his hand against uh, Rayfield Wright's helmet, reeling him to the turf. It was, he says, it was just as if I'd been hit by a baseball bat. It was a very much a different, it was a different game in those days. And um, this, a guy who played in the trenches for, like I said, 10, 12 years against some of the best NFL players of all time. Oh, and then, okay. And then Gil Brandt, who's the Hall of Fame executive for the, um, the Dallas Cowboys, says that in that same game, um, Despite his intimidation, Rayfield Wright played well, um, and he he didn't allow a sack, and he didn't really allow Deacon Jones to do anything, and he ended up being named the team's player of the game for that game. So even against an all-time great like Deacon Jones, Rayfield Wright more than knew how to hold his own. Why don't we move on, and we once again have... Uh, a New York Islander legend, and that is Mike Bossy, who was born in 1957 and passed away on April 15th. Bossy played his entire 10-year career with the New York Islanders and won four Stanley Cups. Bossy twice led the league in goals and holds the NHL record for highest career goals per game. His number 22 was retired by the Isles in 1992, only the second player so honored by the team. He also won the NHL's Lady Bing Trophy for sportsmanship three times. He's the greatest Islander of all time. He he was the best player on those teams. I'm not the expert on the Islanders. I think most people have Potman second and then and then Mike Bossy number one. He is still 22nd all time in goals. In 80-81, he scored 50 goals in 50 games. There was a sort of a race as to who was going to be the first one to score 50 goals in 50 games. He had two in his 50th game to get there, scored 573 goals and had 553 assists in his career in only 752 games, 85 goals and 75 assists in 129 playoff games. 
at retirement, he held the record for the highest goals per season average, which was uh, over 57 and obviously was the linchpin for a team that, you know, won four straight Stanley Cups and then went to a fifth one. Most consecutive 50 goal plus seasons, most 50 goal plus seasons, not consecutively, most 60 goal seasons, highest goals per game average. Most power play goals in one. Wow, that's these are starting to get to one, you know, one season. But um, you know, he's consistently on the you know greatest hockey players of all times list. Probably just below the um, probably just below the absolute upper echelon guys who non hockey fans even recognize the name. But yeah, he's uh, 1997. So obviously, you probably knock him down another 10 or 12 pegs just in the last thing. But in 1997, he was ranked number 20 in greatest hockey players of all time, which was a decade after his retirement. So you would imagine even now he's still in the top 40 and is the greatest uh, New York Islander of all time. About 30 years ago now, George Vesey, the New York Times the columnist and sports reporter for many years, says, Mike Bossy was a wing, the way Tom Seaver was a pitcher, the way Walt Frazier was a guard. So, yeah, a guy who, among that community of Islanders fans, sort of transcended everybody else and was, like you said, he is the greatest Islander of all time. All right, why don't we move on uh, to another guy in another sport? Yes. All right. Uh, Daryl LaMonica, born in 1941, died on April 21st. Known as the Mad Bomber, LaMonica led a prolific Oakland Raider passing attack in the late 1960s, winning two MVP awards and leading the Raiders to the Super Bowl in 1967. LaMonica's 791 winning percentage as a starting quarterback is second only to Otto Graham in NFL history. He began his career as a backup to Jack Kemp in Buffalo, winning two AFL titles. I think the thing you need to remember about the Raiders is they didn't throw long because they got LaMonica. They got LaMonica because they wanted to throw long. That's from an old VHS tape that my brother and I had for years. I don't even remember what the rest of that thing was about. I just remember that. That's how I learned who Daryl LaMonica was. And then he was in, I think, the second Hanukkah song by Adam Sandler. I don't think the one, but either the second or third one. You know that I just found out as I was researching this, he was actually drafted by the Lombardi Packers. And was he? And went to the AFL instead because he thought that would be a better place for him, whether it was playing time or winning or money or whatever it was. But yeah, he was drafted by Vince Lombardi's Packers. So, Well, if you think about what would have happened, he would have sat behind Bart Starr for three or four years and then probably been the one tasked with taking over. And it would have been a Like, I think he made... He made the right decision, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think he's probably a guy who falls maybe just short of being a Hall of Famer. He he was a good player. He didn't have a great uh, reception uh, completion rate, but he was uh, he only made he was a three time AFL champion. So the two times with Jack Kemp as the as the backup in Buffalo, and then a two time AFL MVP. 67 and 69. So he's the last ever AFL most valuable player leads the team to Super Bowl two against Lombardi and the Packers. And his best years are probably in the AFL. 
he he runs the this what's known as the Sid Gilman offense, which is this wide open AFL offense pioneered by Sid Gilman, who's the coach of the uh, San Diego Chargers in the 1960s in the American Football League. He's famously the quarterback in the Heidi game, which was the game where with the New York Jets up uh, two touchdowns or uh, by by two scores late in the game. Um, the network uh, NBC switched to a broadcast of the children's movie Heidi and away from the game. Then the Raiders scored two late touchdowns to take the lead and just defeat the Jets in, I believe that was 1967. And the beginning of sort of a series of good but not great quarterbacks for the Oakland Raiders, um, from him to Kenny Stabler, who's now in the Hall of Fame, and then Jim Plunkett, and sort of like Rakefield Wright was with the Cowboys, Daryl LaMonica was kind of there for the beginning of this long run of domination by the Raiders. Yeah, he was named the, uh, and it's it's a little there's, you know, multiple voting groups and things like that. So one of the years, it wasn't a consensus, but he was some version of the AFL's most valuable player twice in 67, which was the year that they lost Super Bowl two to the Packers. And then in 69, again, he was named again. I think that was the year where there was sort of a split uh, consensus on who the MVP of the league was. I think he might have shared it with Namath that year, actually. But he... uh you know, it, you're looking at a guy, 900 winning percentage in the AFL. Um, and, you know, the AFL was certainly a lesser level of competition, but it wasn't the USFL or the World Football League where he ultimately did sign, but only through 19 passes and then probably had his uniform sold from under him at halftime. Something, if you remember our AFL or our World Football League episode. But, um, yeah, sort of a, a guy who... You know, again, it, not to overstate the case, but was sort of symbolic of a, a you didn't see that style in the NFL at that time. Like, I oh, will just throw the ball all the way down the field like that. And that was a, a sort of hallmark of those very early Raiders teams was sort of the very aggressive, high risk, high reward style of offense. And he's throwing to some of the, you know, some of the future Hall of Famers. You know, Fred Bolitnikoff, he's he's sort of the beginning of, like you said, of that passing attack. And a lot of those guys would remain on the team even after he was no longer around. But guys like Bolitnikoff, I don't know if, if Cliff Branch was on the team uh, during his during his time there, or if Branch was not until after LaMonica had retired. But the forerunner to some of those really sort of freewheeling high octane everybody's a character type of Oakland Raider team. So um looks like they would overlap a little bit. Branch's rookie year was in 72. So a little bit of overlap. A little bit of overlap there. So yeah. Definitely a, a unique figure in in um in Oakland Raider history, a part of that lore and a unique player in the, the history of the AFL. Why don't we move on and get back to a little bit of hockey here, and we'll talk about Guy Lafleur, who was born in 1951 and passed away on April 22nd. The first NHL player to score 50 goals in six consecutive seasons, Lafleur was a key member of the Montreal Canadiens dynasty of the 1970s, which won five Stanley Cups from 1973 to 1979. 
LaFleur twice won the Hart Memorial Trophy for the most valuable player in the league and was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1988. He nonetheless came out of retirement that same year and played three additional seasons in the league, including one with the Rangers, actually, before he went back to... I, he finished up with a Canadian team, but he, his original yeah, what, out of retirement was with the Rangers. Well, and what happened was he um, he came out with the Rangers and then finished with the Nordiques because he was with a... Um, the head coach of the Rangers, uh, I might not pronounce this correctly, I think it's Mikhail Bergeron, had been the Rangers coach and they were friends. So then when he got fired and went to Quebec, the Nordiques, LaFleur went with him, which you know was probably a, a real boon to the Nordiques at the time, playing in Quebec with the Canadiens, obviously second-class citizens. But now, even though he's in his 40s, they have one of the uh, architects of that, you know, one of the key players of that 70s, Canadiens team playing for them. It also made him one of, he was one of the few players who didn't, he was probably one of the last players to not wear a helmet because he was grandfathered in. Even though by the time he joined the league again in 1988, he'd been out of the league for however long, but he was still grandfathered in based on when his career started. So he, he was playing through 1991 without a helmet. And that was really sort of the last great run of the Montreal Canadiens. They won the, Stanley Cup in 93. They won it in 86. But that era of dominance of theirs really is is that it's, you know, maybe in the, it's big in the 50s in the Rocket Richard years. But then with him, they win. What did we say here? They won five, I believe. They won five from 73 to 79. And he was the leader of that team. The coach of that team was uh, Scotty Bowman, who is considered to be the best coach in the history of NHL hockey but Bowman won Stanley Cups with I think like four, three or four different franchises so he's one of the all-time great coaches and LaFleur one of the all-time great players for the Canadiens he nickname was the flower for obvious reasons and he was one of these guys he was just he was beloved by the Canadiens one of the all-time great franchises in Northern American sports and he is the one of the most beloved players and the leader of that team in the 1970s. He was also, he was called the flower like in English because Lafleur means flower in English, but they also called him, I won't do the pronunciation correctly, but it's Le Demon Blonde. The blonde demon was what French fans called him. A couple of interesting, uh, he was, I guess he was a little bit of a, I don't know if flamboyance the right word, but he was certainly a, um, you know, he was a, an athlete very much of the seventies in terms of being a little more flashy and, and, and uh, you know, less reserved in the, the big sideburns and the, the sort of, you know, obviously it comes with a little bit of a French Canadian spin, but the, um, you know, just sort of being a, a, a character, I guess, in a sport where, you know, if you think about guys in the sixties, if you picture a player in the sixties in hockey, I just think of like, those black and white pictures of guys in the dressing rooms and their faces are covered in blood. And then you got a guy who's a little bit more flashy. I did also want to point out that in 1979, he released the, the album Le Fleur consisting of Guy Le Fleur reciting hockey instructions accompanied by disco music. I'm assuming the hockey instructions are in French. But, um, Good Lord. I just... I just thought that was interesting. He won an MVP in 1977, it looks like, something like that. 
somewhere in that range. Oh yeah, we have that. We won the heart from that most valuable twice. It was twice the MVP. I'm sorry. Um, and then yeah, that sort of late, uh, late career. He didn't just come back for like 30 games. He came back for three seasons after having been retired for several years at that point, and presumably played well enough to at least be, you know, getting shifts. Yeah, even a guy like him, I'm sure if he was just downright terrible, somebody would have had a conversation with him and been like, look, you know, the coach wouldn't have purposely brought him to Quebec. He would have been like, why don't you just stay here? <laughs> Maybe a couple of couple yeah. of quick couple of quick notes to close this. When he died earlier this year, they interviewed John Davidson, who was a goalie for the Rangers at around that time. And he said when he got the puck at the blue line at the old Montreal Forum and headed up the ice, you could just feel the rush. You'd feel the people make noise and that noise would get louder and louder and the people would stand whether he scored or not. There are four Canadian players who are honored with statues outside of the Bell Center, which is where the team plays. And that's um, Rocket Richard, Howie Morenz, Dean Bellevue and Guy Lafleur. So. One of the all-time great players for one of the all-time great franchises in the history of the National Hockey League. Why don't we move on? And Andrew, do you want to tell us a little bit about our next honoree? Sure. Bob Lanier, born in 1948, passed away on May 10th. An eight-time NBA All-Star, Lanier played in 14 seasons for in the NBA for the Detroit Pistons and Milwaukee Bucks, both of whom have retired as number 16. Lanier is still the all-time Pistons leader in points per game. He was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 1992. And we are glad to have with us back again the host of Basketball History 101 on the Sports History Network, Rick Loiza. And Rick, uh, thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. No, glad you could do it. Really glad to have you be a part of it. Um, so Bob Lanier, uh, maybe not somebody that's well known, well known among fans, but not, you know, not a Kareem or a Wilt or one of these great centers of all time. What sort of do you would you say is the most important thing to know about Bob Lanier? I think the thing with Bob Lanier, you're and you're right that he's not in that elite category of center. Uh, he's probably maybe that second tier of Hall of Fame. And it's hard to say because he was he was legitimately a Hall of Fame center, but probably just kind of in that that level, that tier below you know wilt and kareem and and uh and bill russell and those guys but i think what he what he did on the court i think was significant in in terms of just how he played but unfortunately he had to deal with some knee injuries right from his rookie year but before we get into that i think his biggest contributions honestly were after he retired from playing days uh for the last i think about 20 15 20 years before he passed, he was one of the NBA's uh, global ambassadors. In other mm-hmm. words, he, he spent a lot of time promoting basketball uh, around the world here in the United States as well, just to to put on clinics and get kids involved with playing basketball and just spreading the game around the world. And I think that was an enormous contribution on his part. He was definitely a lifer, spent time as an assistant mm-hmm. coach. He was actually interim head coach of the Golden State Warriors in yeah for a part of a season after Don Nelson was either let go or I don't know exactly what the story was there. Yeah. Don Nelson, Don Nelson got fired. Did, did Nelson get fired? <laughs> and I think he got hired by the Knicks the following off season, which yeah. ended up being a disaster. But yeah, so he, he was a guy who was around. Unfortunately for him, I think he really played on a couple of really bad franchises. He was on the Pistons early in his career on some teams that made the playoffs a little bit, but were not very good. 
and then had some better luck in the 80s with Milwaukee. I think they made the Eastern Conference Finals a couple of years, and they were decent. And then, like you said, he went on to this um, this great career, a great life afterwards, sort of being an ambassador for the league and for the sport and kind of spreading the gospel of basketball throughout the world. But a guy who unfortunately gets kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit because there's not a lot of moments yeah. there that you can really point to as – great seasons, great games, that type of thing. So, yeah, the, the, the thing with any, with any player, regardless of whether it's basketball, football, hockey, baseball, what have you, people remember those clutch moments. And typically that means playing in the, in the conference finals, playing in the, in the finals, in the NBA finals and having those moments where you make a big shot, like a, whether it's a Robert Ori make draining a three against the, the Kings or, or something of that level. And unfortunately, Lanier never really got the opportunity to play in those big games because he was on weaker teams and it's not no fault of his own. Uh, I mean, the guy went to the all-star game, as you said, eight times, but he was just on weak teams. He was on, when he was on the Pistons, this is way before Isaiah and Joe Dumars and those bad boy Pistons. None of those guys, those guys were all still in high school and middle school at the time. And and you're right. In, in Milwaukee, he gets some more, uh, a little bit better teams, but again, just not strong enough. That just he was never in a situation where he had a lot of talent around him, and that's unfortunate. Because as as great as these guys are, at the end of the day, I think it's still it, it's a team sport, and you got to have a complete team. You got to have offense, defense, and all five of your positions pretty much settled uh, if you're going to go deep. And he never had that. I said that he made it to two. Eastern Conference Finals. I think it might have only actually been one, and that was in his very last year yeah. in 83-84. Maybe the best team that he ever played on, coached by the aforementioned Don Nelson, 50-win team, wins the Central Division, and they make it to the NBA Finals, or to the, to the Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics, lose in, in five games, and this is a team with um, you know Sidney Moncrief and Paul Pressey, and Lanier is the starting center in his last year in the league. So never really gets um, never really gets a big moment, but he's well known in NBA history for a for a couple of things. He his his shoes. He had big yeah. feet um, somewhere yeah. in the 18 to 19. Uh, maybe some have even said over 20 size range. So there are bronze models of his uh, of his shoes. I don't know if they're bronze models or the actual shoes in the Basketball Hall of Fame, but his shoes are on display at the Basketball yeah. Hall of Fame in Springfield. So he's he's well known for that. And then another interesting anecdote that I had was that in a game, well, once he was traded from Detroit to the Bucks in a game against the Pistons, he gets so angry at Bill Lambeer that he just hauls it's off and slugs Bill Lambeer and yeah. that is the reason that the Celtics, I'm sorry, that the Pistons don't retire his jersey until the early 90s because <laughs> yeah. they're mad at him that he slugged Bill <laughs> Lambeer in a game. The Bucks retire his jersey almost almost immediately after he retires, but the Pistons make him wait because they're angry that he probably yeah. deservedly hauled off and punched Bill yeah, Lambeer. Yeah. I thought that was funny, interesting because Mil because he only went to one All Star game with Milwaukee, mm -hmm. and then the other seven he went to while he was a Piston. Um, yeah, and you're right. Milwaukee retires his number practically the day he retires. Pistons wait on, it. and I I thought good for him because whatever I'm sure Lane Beer deserved it. Whatever, whatever yep. the reason that uh, Lanier slugged him, uh, but yeah, those size. I have seen those shoes. I've been to the Hall of Fame a couple of times. 
and he does have, I think it's officially a size 22 sneaker mm-hmm. that is on display. And, um, and so you can kind of compare, you know, you can compare your own shoe next to his and see, uh, uh, see what it is. And, and it's interesting because his feet were so enormous and it's still the record. I think Shaq came very, very close. Shaq's sneakers are like just within a hair of Bob Lanier's. But when he was in middle school, he was in middle school because his feet were even large as a kid. The middle school coach told him that you'll never make it as an athlete. Your feet are too big. You're going to be too, uh, too clumsy. <laughs> so much for that coach. <laughs> and uh, he also is referenced in one of the, uh, one of the more famous movie lines of all time, which, yes. which I have to get in there for, for anyone who doesn't know in the movie airplane, which I believe came out in 1980, either 79 or 80. The joke is that the, the co-pilot is, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and at first you don't know are they stunt casting it or are they going to say and basically there's also a relic of a previous time where there's a kid in the cockpit talking to the pilot which is its own story um and he goes wait a minute you're Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and he's like no my name is Roger I'm the co-pilot blah 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 he's like no you're Kareem we saw you play my dad says you're really lazy and you only try hard unless it's the playoffs and finally Kareem snaps and he goes Listen, kid, I've been hearing that crap since I was at UCLA. You tell your old man to drag Walton and Lanier up the floor for 48 minutes a night. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's one of the enduring legacies, Bob Lanier, that he's yeah. mentioned uh, that famous airplane scene. So, yeah, I love that scene. That kid is, <laughs> I mean, the kid, the kid was so scared after he let him go. <laughs> his, his years in Detroit, or at least his last year, a couple of years in Detroit, he plays under Dick Vitale, which does not go well. <laughs> Vitale, not a good NBA coach. I think he lasts a season and then like another 10 games. Uh, Bill Simmons, again, I quoted him in his book of basketball a little earlier. Uh, he said, um, that we remember Lanier for his tough lefty hook, his sneaky fall away, those giant sneakers, and how he replaced Willis Reed as the league's premier, quote, I'm a nice guy, but if you cross me, I will beat the living tar out of you in front of everyone center. So he was <laughs> he was definitely a force to be reckoned with in his time and a Hall of Famer. Yeah. No- yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, he's, a, he's a guy that everybody liked. He was definitely a competitor, but everybody liked Lanier. He was just a good dude. The one thing I did want to say to talk about is his rookie year. So his senior year at St. Bonaventure in college, he leads the team to the final four, but he's not able to play in the final four because he injures his knee. Mm-hmm. So he has to sit out. His team loses. And uh, going into his rookie year, his knee probably wasn't where it should have been in that rookie. But the coach wants him to play because he's the number one draft pick. I drafted number one overall in 19. I think it was 1970. And so he plays on a knee that's not fully healed. And in retrospect, they look at that season and think that's probably why he suffered so many knee issues throughout his career. If he had taken the rookie year off, uh, the rookie year off, kind of like Blake Griffin or or Ben Simmons or like one of these guys that ends up missing their entire rookie year, that if he had done that and allowed his knee to really heal properly, he might have been able to perform at a, at a little bit higher level. But, uh, but I mean, in the 1970s, it was just different. You, you just, you played hurt and, and, uh, and I think it, it just caused some, some long-term, long-term issues that he, he, he couldn't, that he could have avoided. But he was still a great player and still a great man. Oh, for, for sure. Rick, um, you joined us earlier for Bill Fitch. You joined us now for 
uh, Bob Lanier. We really appreciate you joining us. And uh, thanks again. And everybody check out uh, Basketball History 101 on the Sports History Network. Yep. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rick. Rick. Take care. All right. See you guys. Yep. Bye. All right. All right. Well, let's move on to another sport and another legend and another guest appearance from a fellow podcast host on the Sports History Network. And we're going to talk about Hugh McElhaney, who was born in 1928 and died on June 17th, nicknamed the King. McElhaney was part of the 49ers million dollar backfield of the 1950s. McElhaney was named all pro in the first in his first two years in the NFL and was a six time pro bowler during his career. He was previously an All-American at the University of Washington and still holds the single game Huskies rushing record with 296 yards against Washington State in 1950. And we are lucky to be joined by the man who has probably dove into more football history uh, over the last three years of the Sports History Network, Darren Hayes, who is a the host of the Pigskin Dispatch, among many other um, endeavors on the Sports History Network. And he's here to talk to us a little bit about Hugh McElhaney. Uh, Darren, good to see you again. And thanks so much for doing this. Hey, Dan and Andrew, uh, thank you for having me on. This is always a pleasure to do. This is a great thing that you do to recognize these great uh, athletes and sports figures at the end of the year. Uh, you know, especially maybe when uh, people are missing them the most, you know, so great. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, what what is it about? Uh, what can you tell us about you, McElhaney? What made him special? Well, you know, I came across an article of doing some research a couple years ago about him that because I didn't really know much about him a couple years ago. I knew he played for the 49ers and, you know, he he was great in his era. But this he was such a humble guy and his roots of uh, being an athlete were very interesting to me and it really made me connect to him and uh, maybe when I share it with with the, you and the listeners maybe it helps you connect to what a great guy this guy was absolutely why don't you tell us a little bit about that well he grew up in the Los Angeles era uh, he was born on New Year's Eve of 1928 which I found was kind of interesting and he you mentioned he was uh, nicknamed the king well Newspaper writers over the years through his uh, collegiate, his high school and professional career, they called him, besides the king, Hurry and Hugh, Hustling Hugh and Hurricane Hugh. Sort of gives you an impression the guy was pretty gifted and, and pretty fast. Uh, so also shows up, you that having an H is a good name back then for uh, nickname. <laughs> yeah, that, that could be too. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that, that could be too. But uh, you know, a lot of them have to do with the the speed and everything he's got. And uh, he, you know, and he was a track star in high school. That's really where he got his name. He ended up uh, uh, setting school high school records and state records in the low hurdles and the broad jump and ran a hundred yard dash in 9.8 seconds. And he won both the hurdles and a long jump in the 1947 uh, California state meet for uh, where they had all the greatest athletes uh, of that state in high school. He was recruited by just about every college there was. His, his father was sort of acting as his agent, which probably most fathers did back in that era. And But he had a little bit of an issue. He was missing a foreign language, and so no colleges would, major colleges would accept him. So he ended up by 
going to a JUCO college local to LA, uh, Compton uh, Community College, and I'm sorry, Compton Junior College, and played played football there for a year. Great season. Had a 105 yard kickoff return for a touchdown. A game played against the University of Mexico. <laughs> And he was the centerpiece of Compton's undefeated football team in 1948 that won the Junior Rose Bowl. Yeah, I found that kind of surprising, too. They had a Rose Bowl for the junior colleges for about <laughs> uh, a 20-year span. Played in Pasadena. so And they won it. He was considered one of the best players in football at any level at that junior college. As a matter of fact, Heisman Trophy winner, Tom Harmon remarked in a paper one time after seeing him play he, that quote, he had never seen such a combination of speed and size, you know, and Harmon had both of those when he played, uh, you know, his, his reputation was, was on fire. So him and a buddy drove around by car to as many colleges as they, as they could, you know, having sort of that, that road trip that you want to do when you're, <laughs> we all dreamed about when we're mm-hmm. in college and, you know, every, everybody was banging at his door got before he committed to anybody he got to play in a Los Angeles all-star game uh, called the Milk Bowl where they raised some money for kids uh, for milk that were less fortunate and a, a writer there for the LA Times Dick Highland described him as this it said you know his cutbacks fakes and feints and changes of pace were bits of sure physical poetic beauty and ended up there, there was pro scouts at that high school all-star game and when he was at Compton and they included uh, the Los Angeles Dons of the, the AAFC, San Francisco 49ers, the New York Yankees and the Pittsburgh Steelers and Chicago Cardinals from the NFL were all there when he was in a ju- junior college. He ended up uh, having the honor of playing in the, uh, an, the International Amateur Football Federation Tournament when he represented the U.S. red, white, and blue team uh, against Hawaii. And he was sort of the the featured player there. He didn't have the greatest of games, but uh, it just gave more renown for him. And he ended up, uh, his father and him ended up agreeing that he play for for University of Washington. And that's where he went and played uh, his his major football at. So just, uh, you know, just, just impressed me, you know, all these things that he did to promote himself but he really promoted himself on the field with his uh, great athleticism. A couple of the things that I found, first of all, he was such a, a good player that the 49ers actually tried to convince him to forego college, not even go to college and sort of join the pros right off. And that's something you think of as a phenomenon of, you know, first of all, not football. And second of all, you know, the 80s and 90s, not the the late 40s, early 50s. In the mid '40s, he trained for the decathlon. He trained in London, or he didn't. I don't know if he tried the the sentence I saw. It said he trained for the decathlon in London. I don't know if he was training for London or training in London. But the '48 Olympics was held in London, England, and he actually beat Bob Mathias in several events. Bob Mathias, who ended up representing the U.S. in the Olympics in the decathlon and winning the gold medal, so. Like you said, just a tremendous all-around athlete. He was probably at his best in the NFL as a kick returner. He was a good sort of running back, you know, pass catcher out of the backfield 
type of guy, Bob St. Clair, who was a fellow uh, 49er of the 50s and a, a teammate, uh, another Hall of Famer, said that 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 McElhaney had sort of a a Barry Sanders type of of game, you know, sort of quick cuts, you know, running. They said that, you know, he he ran for X number of yards in his career, but probably covered three times as much difference with the running back and forth trying to gain those yards, which is very similar to a Barry Sanders type thing. Never rushed for a thousand yards in a season. He was part of this 40, these 49er teams who sort of like the 49ers of the early seventies were good teams, but never really got over that hump. He came to the 49ers in 1952 in the NFL made all pro his first two years. And then a couple years later uh, made a couple more pro bowls, but they were always kind of decent, you know, seven and five, nine and three, seven, four and one. The only playoff appearance he gets in is in 1957 when they lose to, uh, to the lions, the eventual world champions 31, 27 in the Western conference finals. So not a guy who did a lot of winning, in his career, but he was part of this great backfield that was called the, the million dollar backfield with uh, two other hall of famers, Y.A. Tittle and Joe Perry. And then uh, John Henry Johnson was the, the other running back. So three of those four guys are in the professional football hall of fame. And I think John Henry Johnson's in the hall of fame also. Is he really? Yeah. He, he went on to play for the Steelers in 1960 and ended up making the hall of fame. Is that correct? Let me. Uh, yep. Not that he's, I don't... he's in the he is in the Hall of Fame. Oh, well, shows yeah, the whole backfield was in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> whole backfield in the Hall of Fame. All four of them. That that's crazy. 49ers million dollar backfield is currently the only full house backfield to have all four of its members enshrined in the Hall of Fame. I like how they say currently. Well, I guess if there's one with three and maybe they put the fourth one in, I don't think there's going to be a modern day resurgence of the full house backfield. <laughs> it puts four guys in the hall of fame. Although football is cyclical. We never know, but um, yep. He uh, was also this J Johnson was also a member of the uh, Steelers legends team, which honors the franchise's best players pre 1970. So that, yes, he, he is a hall of famer as well. well. No, I'll be, I'll be darned. That shows, shows what I know. McElhaney's, reputation was one i think the king really kind of fit who he was he was revered there's a story uh jerry kramer the great hall of fame guard for the packers in one of his books talks about being a rookie in 1958 and in a preseason game being on the kickoff team against the 49ers and they kick it off to McElhaney. and he says as he's running down the field in this preseason game he says here i am just some kid from idaho and i'm going to try and tackle the king so he was, he did have that reputation among the public and among his fellow players in the late 1950s. Finishes out his career kind of all over the place, a uh, year or two with the Vikings, uh, finishes up with the Lions. And Andrew, I don't know if you're aware, you probably are. He, he plays in 1963 on that last giant team to make it to the NFL title game, sort of the last good giant team for... 18, 19 years. He he reunites yeah. with Tittle and Giffords there and Alex Webster and Del Schaffner. So he's very much a role player, but does kind of finally make it to an NFL title game in 63 with the Giants. 
Yeah, he he was drafted by the uh, he was taken by the Vikings in '61, and they were in the expansion draft. So he was on the Vikings in their initial couple of years in '61 and '62. He described his time with them as a dead end streak because you know he was an aging running back. They were rebuilding or not? They were you know building for the future. Obviously, weren't planning on contending right away, especially as they found out that they were going to be sharing a division with the. Uh, budding dynasty in green bay but um yeah he ended up spending a year with the giants he said it was something to the effect of it's great to be on a winner he was basically shot by then as his knees were gone he wasn't able to do too much but he was able to sort of do a little bit here and there that 63 giants team lost in the uh nfl championship game to the bears and then one more year with detroit and uh and that was it when he retired he was third all-time and all-purpose yards. He had 11,375 all-purpose yards, third when he retired uh, after the 64th season. And I also saw that until 1998, he had the three longest runs in 49er history. Yeah, that, that's true. He's still, uh, I was looking it up, he's still the 129th on the list of uh, career NFL rushers, even with his... 5,800 some yards rushing. So, you know, he, dude, uh, that's, that's still pretty respectable for if you think about all those backs ahead of him. Not bad for a guy who never, mm-hmm. uh, never ran for more than a thousand yards in a season. In 1952, his rookie year, he averaged seven yards a carry, which is pretty, pretty good in any era, too. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to uh, go ahead. Sorry, Darren. Uh, not a problem. Uh, he, the thing that really caught me, this is a story I want to share with you guys. When he first left Washington and became a pro, he, he shared the story in September 4th with the, the Seattle post intelligent. So he's a little bit older when he's telling a story. He said he actually made more money in college and he admitted, uh, you know, illegally uh, yep. some of the money he got in college that him, him and his wife together were making like 10 grand when he, his senior year in college, when he goes to the 49ers, she has to quit her job. He's only making seven grand with the, with the 49ers. And I, I just thought, you know, the honesty of this guy who's a, a legend, uh, you know, it could be besmirching his, his, uh, great, uh, legendary status, mm-hmm. but I, I respect him more for it, for, for being honest about it. And it's just a whole different era. And, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. It was in Oh four, I guess he finally, after decades of denying it said, yeah, I got improper benefits while I was there. <laughs> um, I was, that was the thing I was going to say is that's one of my favorite jokes of all time. You know, I've heard it for more modern players, but he might be one of the first ones they ever made that joke about that. He took a pay cut when he went to the NFL and he, he admitted that he admitted that as a rookie, it was basically true. So, you know, it was a, a different time and I don't think that makes you a, a, a bad or even dishonest person, but it's just kind of a funny, uh, a funny button on the story that, you know, for decades he denied it. And I guess by 2004, 60 years after he left college, he figured out ah, there's probably not much they can do to me now. So I'll just admit it. <laughs> I have a book here on the million dollar backfield that was written in 2000. So almost 20 years ago. And you had it already. What do you mean? Did you buy it for this or you had it? Already? No, I had it already figured. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't buy books for for the podcast. I just scan the bookshelf and there's usually one there, unfortunately. <laughs> And the, the author talks about how McElhaney couldn't get, he had to just take constant cigarette breaks during the interview. So even in his early seventies, he would 
he was continuing to smoke. Um, I don't know if quit at some point, but either way, it didn't hurt him. He lived until 93 and he was one of the oldest living Hall of Famers uh, at the time of his death. He was not the oldest. And in fact, a little bit later on, we're going to talk about Charlie Trippy, who was over 100 and died this year, who had been the oldest living Hall of Famer. I want to close Pat Summerall uh, when interviewed about or when questioned about Hugh McElhaney says, my memories of McElhaney are punt returns, kickoff returns, long runs. He's one of those players that when you look across the line of scrimmage, you better be sure you know where he is at all times. He was scary. The closest thing to him I've seen is Gail Sayers, incidentally, who Darren came on to talk with me about a couple years ago. I have this one picture of McElhaney running down the field and pointing out to his blockers which guys to block. And then somewhere all says, I could see McElhaney today in a role like Marshall Falk. An every down back coming out of the backfield, running and receiving. You'd want him to have as many carries as possible, but you'd worry if he could hold up. Like most thoroughbreds, they do get hurt. And I think as we talked about, he suffered from some, some bad knees and that type of thing later in his career. So Hugh the King McElhaney, one of the greats uh, of all time in San Francisco 49er history. Before we sign off here um, or end, end this segment, uh, Darren you are the host of the pigskin dispatch as well as some other endeavors on the sports history network. I know right now you're in the middle of a segment or a series, I should say on the Rose bowl. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days on the network? Yeah. Uh, well, we have uh, 40 days of Rose bowl history. We have 40 straight days of podcasts. There's probably 50 or 60 podcasts altogether. Some days there's multiples coming out. We have a, a bunch of historians and authors coming on talking about a lot of the games and different aspects of the Rose bowl stadium. Cause it turns a hundred years uh, in January, 2023, uh, the stadium does. And uh, just have some great conversations and, uh, it's just some some great football history just talking about that one game and uh you don't realize how much has actually happened in that game until you start looking at some of these and some of the great players that played in it so having a blast doing that and you've also been involved with um our first uh, sort of um fictional drama on the network uh, Orville Mulligan you want to tell everybody a little bit about that yeah, uh, Orville Mulligan Sports Writer is the name of it, and it's on your favorite podcast providers. And uh, myself and Oz Davis of uh, Truly the Ghosts has teamed up, and we've started this project a little over a year ago. And we uh, wrote a fictional character of Orville Mulligan in the 1920s, and he's going around to all these great events uh, this first season. We have him in the, the season of uh, 1924, in the fall of 1924. So you have... Uh, you know, the Four Horsemen of Notre Dame, you have Ernie Nevers, you have uh, World Series going to Game 7. Uh, we have some boxing, we have some wrestling, we have uh, a lot of different sports of that era, and we're capturing actual historic events through this fictional character, and there's a great, some great storylines. So I think it's uh, something that everybody can enjoy of any age, and it's uh, it's kind of entertaining. The great actors on it, too, by the way, they're excellent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we always we always enjoy uh, spending some time with you, Darren. About a year ago, Andrew and I, when Darren was doing another one of his um, his long term projects on his show, he did um, the best player, the 10 best players at 
each number in NFL history. And Andrew and I go, we were on a ton of them. I think we did like nine or ten. Um, sure. So we, you might have done were, a few more than me. I don't think I did nine, but I, I think did I only did one. I think I only did one more than you. Okay, maybe we did like six or seven. We did a bunch though, and we did quite a few. Yeah, you guys, <laughs> oh yeah, it was fun. Yeah, you guys were regulars. I had to give you a time card. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, Warren Rogan uh, stole a lot of the 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 giant numbers that I wanted, so we had to we had to compromise a little bit. But still, it was a lot of fun. Well, Darren, we always enjoy having you. We always enjoy uh, listening and following everything you do um, on the network, whether it's with Orville Mulligan or the Pigskin Dispatch or some of the other work you've done with sports jerseys. And it's really it's really been a blast uh, getting to know you these last few years. So Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you and your family. And we appreciate you joining us. Same to you guys. I appreciate you and thank you and have great holidays with your family and uh, stay safe. Thank you. All right, so thanks to Darren for talking to us about Hugh McElhaney, and we are going to move on and speak with another colleague at the Sports History Network about another NFL legend, and that is Marlon Briscoe, who was born in 1945 and passed away on June 27th. The first black starting quarterback in modern professional football, Briscoe threw 14 touchdown passes for the Denver Broncos in 1968. He later converted to wide receiver and won two Super Bowls with the Miami Dolphins in the 1970s. When we go through and do these, what we're, I shouldn't say we, when I go through and put these lists together with Andrew's feedback and input, sort of the general rule that I have is anybody who was a Hall of Famer from the three major sports and anybody who was a Hall of Famer in the NHL usually makes it on unless they're so obscure that I really don't think that Andrew or I would have much to say. Then we look at guys who sort of had big moments. We obviously have a little bit of a New York bent. And so if there's, you know, we'll talk about Ralph Terry or actually we will have already spoken about Ralph Terry, who was a you know pitcher for the Yankees in the 60s. So it's mostly Hall of Famers, but also record setters, guys with key moments. And then obviously we can get into if there's key figures in other sports, boxing, tennis golf um you know we will go outside if you know there's somebody huge international in soccer for the major three we do mostly hall of famers but occasionally we will sort of delve deeper into somebody and marlon briscoe as one of the first black quarterbacks in modern professional football as well as just sort of an interesting story plus the fact that he was a pro bowler at another position and won a couple of uh, Super Bowls with the Miami Dolphins, including the undefeated team. For all of those reasons, I thought that even though he's not somebody who's in the Hall of Fame, would be a good person to to talk a little bit about here. And so Andrew and I are glad to have uh, Dana Augusta from the Historically Speaking Sports podcast back with us. And so, Dana, um, you were with on, on with us a little earlier to speak about Charlie Taylor and uh why don't you tell us a little bit about what you made you want to come on and talk about Marlon Briscoe? Well, first off, thank you for having me back on. I really appreciate it. Marlon Briscoe was someone that, as someone who actually in junior high played quarterback, had never, and, and I've always was interested in African American quarterbacks, me being African American myself, and playing quarterback for a very short time. Unfortunately, that's, that's another story for another day. But <laughs> he was someone who I never really heard of until I got into my 20s. And it was it was a book that I had read called Third and Long. And I forget, I can't remember who wrote the book, but it was Third and Long. It's basically the exploration of black quarterbacks through pro football, you know, and mm-hmm. 
I had that's when I heard about Marlon Briscoe, the first black starting quarterback to start on a consistent basis in pro football. And he played for the Broncos and was the quarterback for only one season. And there are two things about him that is remarkable. One, he still holds the record for the Broncos as the most touch with the most touchdown passes by a rookie. He has 14 touchdown passes in 1968, which is still a Broncos rookie record, even more than John Elway, believe it or not. John Elway in 83 only threw seven touchdown passes that his first year. Mm-hmm. Marlon Briscoe doubled that. And secondly, he was the subject and he was actually the namesake of a fictional high school in a Nike commercial in the early 2000s. If you remember, there was a song that Nike had this campaign in the early 2000s called Football is Everything. Mm-hmm. And this Nike commercial was this fictional high school. Michael Vick was there, LT, Brian Erlacher, Don Shula was the coach of this fictional high school. Jimmy Johnson was in the commercial playing a history, a history teacher. And you had all of these NFL stars and the coaching staff, they showed us this, this, this scene in the locker room where Don Shula is giving the team a pregame pep talk. And the coaches was Urban Meyer was an assistant, yet the other assistant was actually Marlon Briscoe. Oh, wow. The actual Marlon Briscoe was one of the assistant coaches. And the name of the school was Marlon Briscoe High School. So he came to prominence post-career somewhat in a very obscure way. You know, <laughs> so I think that, that so I think that, that was really cool on their part to do that. Like I said, he was the first black quarterback in pro football to start on a consistent basis with the Denver Broncos and would later go on to be a wide receiver with the Buffalo Bills. And later on, like you said, with the Miami Dolphins and won two Super Bowl rings with the Dolphins as a as a receiver opposite of Paul Warfield and Howard Twilley. But with the Broncos and with him at quarterback. And again, I love to compare current guys to guys from back in the day. If you would imagine Marlon Briscoe, he's kind of like a cross between Russell Wilson and Lamar Jackson. That's mm-hmm. what he was like. If you ever watched film of him with him playing Bronco, when he, when he was playing the quarterback for the Broncos, wearing number 15, he was just this guy that would just take off running and was just extremely accurate downfield. So it was, he was, he had a talent. Lou Saban, the coach of the Broncos said himself, it didn't matter whether you were red, black, pink, or blue. Here was a talent. And this talent was the type of talent that electrified the fans, which they desperately needed in Denver at that time, because this was, Right before Floyd Little became the, the running back, as things turned out, he only stayed in Denver for one year and played quarterback just for that one year. And I think your point about the Broncos is sort of a good one. They were kind of a joke when the AFL started. Everybody, and even just and Andrew and I talked about this uh, a couple months ago when we did our NFL expansion league and team episode, and we talked about how the Broncos were kind of a symbol to a lot of NFL fans and NFL people of what a joke the AFL was because they had these sort of (laughs) bright orange uniforms with the striped socks and everything. And they were pretty, they were not good for most of the sixties. Meanwhile, you had teams like Kansas city, Oakland, Buffalo, even the jets, even the Patriots, but the Broncos never really very good in the 1960s. And I, I was just looking just right on the Wikipedia page for the, the 68 Broncos. And it says that the team, 
during this year um, threatened to relocate to Atlanta, Chicago, and Birmingham, Alabama. So there was really some serious talk <laughs> of the Broncos leaving. So to get an exciting player like that, like you said before the Floyd Little days, Floyd Little, incidentally, who I believe we covered on an in memoriam uh, a couple of years ago. I think two years ago, yeah. Years, I think he died in 2020. So that was um that was interesting. The funny thing I found, and you you saw a sort of a complimentary comment from Lou Saban. I found in my research that he kind of had a little bit of a conflict with Saban, and that was why he only stayed there for the one year. Now, the interesting and somewhat ironic piece of that is that he leaves the Denver Broncos, goes to Buffalo, and then a couple of years ago, they hire Lou Saban. Yeah. <laughs> and so he's got another conflict <laughs> with the same coach, and that's he had sort of transitioned to receiver by that point, and that was where he ended up in Miami and then actually closed out his career with the, with the new England Patriots um, had one season where he played for both Detroit and San Diego, and then played one last full season in 76 with the, with the Patriots who in and of themselves, that 76 Patriots team was, it was a good team. They were 11 and three kind of came out of nowhere and made the playoffs and lost to Oakland by a field goal. So that was, that was a good team that he played on at the end of his career. So a guy who played on a bunch of different teams in his career and was also one of the receivers Secondary, obviously, to Paul Warfield, who wouldn't have been, but he was a member of that undefeated 72 Dolphin team. One of the things that we've talked about, and I know I'm getting a little long winded here, and this maybe isn't specific to Briscoe, but you start to see, and it's very sad, you start to see some of these guys from these teams start to die off. So, like, basically, the, you know, basically the Yankee dynasty of the, 50s and 60s is is basically gone. There's a few guys that are still around, but it's basically gone. The, and we'll we'll get into to, to one of these in in a big way in a minute here. But you know how many guys have been lost from the the Auerbach Celtics over the last few years? How many guys have been lost from the Lombardi Packers over the last couple of years? And I think unfortunately we're going to start to see that more with these 70s teams also, whether it's the Steel Curtain or these right. Dolphins. So. That's something I think it's also worth noting with Briscoe. Is it a guy who was a key part of what many people consider to be the best single season team in the history of professional football? And that some of these guys are getting older and, and starting to pass away. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, you know, going back to, to Briscoe, you talked about the, 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 the incident with Lou Saban in 60. 60- in the 69 season, which would have been his second season, Saban had intended to start Pete Lisk at quarterback and then have Steve Tinsley as the backup. Briscoe was like, no, I don't want to be a part of this. If I'm going to be, I'd negotiate to be a quarterback and I've led the Broncos, excited the fans and all of this, so I deserve at least a shot. And Lou Saban, for whatever reason, wouldn't grant that wish. So he decided to move on to Buffalo. And Buffalo was an interesting situation as well because they already had a black quarterback on staff, you know, which was which was uh, Harris, which is Shaq Harris from Grambling, which I know so much about mm-hmm. because, you know, my my godfather attended Grambling at the same time. James Harris was the quarterback there, and he was more of a t- prototypical quarterback at the time. He wasn't like like. um like Briscoe, because Briscoe was on like five foot ten, one hundred and seventy pounds, as opposed to James Shaq Harris, was like six four. He was like the Cam Newton of the sixties. 
mm-hmm. you know, and he they already had a quarterback there, and they, and plus they had Jack Kemp, who was toward the end of his career, you know. So you already had two quarterbacks. You already had two quarterbacks there, including one of them was black. So I think that precipitated his move to become a wide receiver, and he was joined in the wide receiver room with Haven Moses, who would later become an All-Pro with the Broncos. And this is amazing why that team did not win more than what they did, because you had a young O.J. Simpson on that team who was a rookie in 60, who was coming into his, his I think that was his rookie year, 69. Mm-hmm. And, and you had Haven Moses on one side, you had Marlon Briscoe on the other. I mean, this, these were athletes. You know, and all you had to do is get the ball. But for some reason, Buffalo just could not win, you know, the post Jack Kemp era, you know, in between, you know, OJ becoming OJ in the early 70s. That was like the space and time in Buffalo where it just seemed like there was just they were just a moribund franchise. And plus you had you, you in the same division with the New York Jets. And then later when the merger happens, you find yourself in the same division with the Colts. And, you know, the Jets were still kind of good. You know, and then the Dolphins were coming on. So it was just, there was just so somewhat of a lost era for the Bills. And then plus the whole entire decade of the 70s, you know, and of course, Briscoe would move on to the Dolphins in time for the 72 perfect season. And incidentally, in 73, believe it, believe it or not, looking back on this, I didn't realize this. In 73, Briscoe was the leading receiver for the Dolphins. It wasn't Warfield. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. He was the leading receiver for the Miami Dolphins that season. So it was, you know, and he, and he caught a key, t- he caught a key pass in Super Bowl eight to set up a score for the Dolphins, I think in the first quarter. So Briscoe had one of his, it was, it's not an obscure career, but he had a very interesting career with not a whole lot of fanfare because, I mean, you got to remember this, this Dolphins team, you had the no name defense, you had an offense that was pretty much predicated on the run. You know, you had Warfield on one side, and you also had Howard Twilley as a receiver, who was a really good possession-type receiver. You know, and Briscoe kind of like got lost in the shuffle there. But his contributions as a member of the Broncos and having the ability to change positions to be a receiver was interesting, and and is a story that needs to be told. Absolutely. And, yeah, you, you're right about them emphasizing the run. I looked at the – stats he didn't catch a single pass in the 72 playoffs he did did more in 73 caught some passes in 73 also it's worth noting that in 69 in that that huddle in buffalo you had a quarterback who was a future uh u.s congressman and vice presidential candidate in jack kemp you had the first black quarterback in modern football in marlon briscoe and then you had oj simpson and you know oj simpson is oj simpson so right <laughs> um that that's a that's a very interesting huddle in in the with the 69 bills something on brisk Oh, and I kind of I didn't really realize this, but um, he was part of a very brief but very significant Omaha had a bit of a moment in sports at this point. There's a quote from Johnny Rogers, who won the uh, Heisman in 1972 at Nebraska. And he said that he and his friends grew up looking up to Briscoe, Baseball Hall of Famer Bob Gibson and Pro Football Hall of Famer Gail Sayers, all of whom were from Omaha. And the Rogers quote is. We did know them, and because we did see them going further, it gave us hope that we could go further, too. That paved the way. So all black athletes, all from Omaha, Nebraska, coming in, you know, obviously Gibson and Sayers are on a little bit of a different level, but, um, you know, be rising to prominence at roughly the same time. Yeah, that's interesting. That that I did not know. I knew that Sayers and, and 
They were all from Nebraska. Johnny Rogers was from Omaha. I, I knew all of that. But as far as like them looking up to Briscoe, and that and that makes sense. You know, that really makes sense because here's a quarterback, here's a guy that's playing quarterback in pro football for at a time when you didn't see heart at really at all. Didn't see black quarterbacks at all. So seeing him would give a young athlete like, yeah, yeah, I could play this position. You know, I, you know, and right around that same time in Kansas City, you had your first black middle linebacker in Willie Lanier. So there was like a groundbreaking era in pro sports. And of course, it was in the AFL, which was already known for being groundbreaking racially for a number of different ways. You had your first black scout in Lloyd Wells at Kansas City. You know, you have a lot of different things that happened to break down those walls of racism. And the AFL was the forerunner of all of that. I I know we're going a little, a little long here, but that's kind of the thing I think that gets lost a little in people's sanitizing of history. It it wasn't Jackie Robinson signed in 1947 and Pee Wee Reese put his arm around him and suddenly there was no more racism in sports. I mean, I've read a book about uh, baseball in 1954 and almost every team was integrated by then except the Yankees and the Red Sox and a couple other ones. But there was sort of this soft cap of like, well, four or five, any more than that's pushing it. And then, you know, 10 years later, it was, you're not going to see a black pitcher. You're not going to see a black quarterback. You're not going to see, you know, at certain positions. And then obviously it became head coaches, general managers, still an issue we're dealing with today. But being a black quarterback in the 60s was considered a trailblazing thing because, Right. There were things out there. Well, they're not smart enough to play the position. And that's obviously, in hindsight, gross and wrong. But that was the prevailing right. wisdom time that a quarterback had to get ahead of. So, right. Dana is going to actually stay right with us here um, to, to deal with our next person. But sort of in between, Dana, why don't you take us a little bit to um, or give, give take a little bit, I should say, to tell us a little bit, a little bit about your podcast, Historically Speaking Sports and this is the podcast that I think is probably the most similar to ours on the network in that you kind of any of the sports, any of the eras, different things. So tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, on hysterically speaking sports, we I, I, I am a big sports history junkie, I guess you can call it. And it's not just in one sport or another. You know, somebody were to ask me, what's your favorite sport? I'd be like the one that's going on right now. Yeah, I'm kind of the um, same way. And um, I recently did an interview with uh, a lady by the name of Erin Grayson Sapp, who talked about, you know, going back to the AFL, we were just talking about the AFL boycott and walkout of the 1965 AFL All-Star Game in New Orleans. And she wrote a whole book about that. And it was a very, very interesting conversation about how that impacted the NFL going to New Orleans. The AFL really wanted the team in New Orleans, and they decided not to because of the, all of the racial incidents that happened in New Orleans leading up to that All-Star game, where ultimately was moved to Houston at the last minute. And it was in New Orleans, eventually got an NFL team a couple of years later with the Saints, obviously, and how that affected the decision to put a team there, you know, and all of the ramifications that happened with the All-Star game. So that was my most recent podcast release. And I have one working on right now. I have big plans in next, you know, going into my third season or my third year in the league. I'm not just, I like to say, but I have a lot going on. What I have coming up next is, um, this is the 40th anniversary of when I 
first really got into college football, 1982. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through and just do a brief synopsis of the 1982 bowl season, which is completely different from what you would see today. And it's sort of like a contrast and compare and contrast type of thing between bowl season of today where they like have, what, 40 some bowl games as opposed to 1982. I think they only had like 17, you know, and you really had to do something to get into a bowl game, not just show up. Um, and um, I'm going through that. You know, one of the games that, that, that talk, that's going to be talked about is the 1982 Liberty Bowl between Alabama and, and Illinois, which was Bear Bryant's final game as a head coach. So we, I'm going to talk about that and that's coming up on my next show, you know, and then next year is going to be year three, which is also going to be my 50th year on, on this planet. So I have a lot going on in 83. I'm going to talk a little bit about that later on. You know, just to fun. correct you real yeah. quick, you did say something about uh, the NFL putting a team in new Orleans with the saints. Uh, new Orleans got the saints long before they got an NFL team. Uh, <laughs> it was about it was about 20 years of that Saints team before they had an NFL. <laughs> so now, now, you know, you you can't say that too loud. I'm from Louisiana. My wife is from Louisiana. <laughs> she is a big Saints fan. You know, and I have a story about that, which was it's just hilarious. I would tell another time. But that's it's it's, <laughs> it's a funny story when it comes down to that. When it comes down to her and, a, and being a Saints fan. So when you when I said before that our podcasts are very similar, um, this year was my 40th birthday and we actually it's not out yet, but it will be by the time this one by the time you're hearing this, the, the previous one will have posted because I'm almost done editing it. Um, we did a 1982 episode Gee. where we sort of went through the whole thrust of all, all of the year in sports in 1982. I think we might have actually missed the fact that Bear Bryant coached his final game, but we, we were at two and a half hours anyway. So it's not like we uh, <laughs> we didn't miss much. But yeah, Dana, you've done everything from sort of, you know, modern, more modern stuff. You've done all their interviews, but then you've also done kind of a lot of like the the fun kind of deep dives from way back, whether it was the Ray Chapman um, killed by a pitch, you know, Miracle Braves, 1914. So kind of like us, you know, you have episodes that are more serious and have more of like a larger, um, you know, larger historical importance. And then you have stuff that was just fun and that was just, you know, cool. And obviously that does not include the death of Ray Chapman. That's a right. <laughs> that wasn't fun, but you, you know what I'm saying? Like, like us, and you did a lot of NBA 75 stuff, which I appreciated because we did that too. Great podcast. Check it out. I've guessed it on it once or twice as well. So um, Dana, we really enjoy it. And uh, you're going to stick right with us here to talk about um, maybe sort of the, the guy we might do more time on than anybody else on the list. This year andrew did you want to read our next name bill russell born in 1934 died on july 31st the winningest player in north american pro sports russell won 11 championships in 13 years including eight in a row as a star center with the boston celtics he won five mvp awards and led the league in rebounding four times russell played the last three seasons of his career as the celtics player coach and won nba titles in 1968 and 1969 after his death the nba announced that they will retire russell's number six throughout the league all right so there are so many places that we can go with bill russell and so i think maybe to start uh we can defer to to dana defer to our guest here and wherever you want to take it with bill russell and then andrew and i will we'll kind of pick up the ball from there 
Well, let's start off with a little known fact that I discovered while doing research about Bill Russell. We got to go all the way back to his high school career at McClyman's High School in Oakland. He's originally he was born in West in West Monroe, Louisiana, which, of course, be, being from Louisiana originally, that's kind of a cool thing. Mm-hmm. But he grew up in Oakland, California and playing for McClyman's High School, which is a legendary basketball high school in Oakland. Do you know that future Hall of Fame baseball player Frank Robinson was his high school teammate? I did not know that. I didn't know that. Frank <laughs> Robinson was his high school basketball teammate at McClyman's High School during the early 1950s. And when he was he wasn't highly he wasn't highly recruited out of high school, believe it or not, because at the time, of course, in the 50s basketball Power forwards and centers were prized for being scorers. You know, you had Mike and at the time and you had others and they were primarily scorers. And that's what coaches were looking for is guys, you know, centers and power forwards that could put the ball in the hoop. But of course, Russell wasn't like that. So he wasn't really highly recruited right out of high school. He was a more of a defensive kind of a defensive player slash rebounder, which he became legendary for doing his NBA career with the Boston Celtics. But as but he was recruited by the University of San Francisco and Phil Wolpert, and he was joined by Casey Jones, who would later become his teammate in Boston. But they were together at San Francisco and they rattled off 55 consecutive wins, which was the longest winning streak in college basketball until UCLA came in the early late 60s and early 70s and won 88 in a row with Bill Walton and then the Walton gang. Um but he attended the University of San Francisco and led them to back-to-back national titles in 55 and 56. And then right after that, he won a gold medal in the 1956 Summer Games in Melbourne. So along with the, the, the 11 NBA championships that, the, that Bill Russell had won, he also has two national championships in, in college basketball and an Olympic gold medal. And he has he's tied with the most pro championships in North America, along with Maurice Richard of the Canadiens, who also won 11 Stanley Cups. So those two are like when you talk about winners, Russell and Maurice Richard are like right up there. It's like the greatest winners. But I think Richard, you know, I think Russell has an edge because of winning two national championships in college basketball and an Olympic gold medal. Yeah, I, I had not realized Richard had the full 11 and not to keep going back to previous. We actually talked about uh, his brother, Henry uh, Henri Richard in 2020 as well. The one that I always think of, too, that's sort of in that same stratosphere is Yogi Berra, who had 10. That's right. So that's kind of that whole group. But you're right, Russell, in addition to the fact that he did it in college, did it in the Olympics. Last couple, he was a coach as well. And so won it. As a coach, and Andrew, refresh my memory. Wasn't uh, that San Francisco team? Didn't they play LaSalle in a national championship game? That's right, they did. Here, I was going to get to that. Um, so in '54, LaSalle won the national championship. Tom Gola, still the all-time NCAA leading rebounder, was their best player. And then in '55, they were back and they were in the championship game, and that was Russell's first one. They lost. It was sort of considered the battle of Tom Gola, who'd been the best player the last few years, and Bill Russell, who was obviously on his way. And I. I, you know, I won't not to frame this all with LaSalle, but I have a couple of book. I have a book here written. We've interviewed the author on here, but it's about Tom Gola and just like a little quick anecdote. Um, the now, the final four was in Kansas City. So this is Kansas City, Missouri in 1955. It says 
Uh, a day prior to the championship game in Kansas City, the LaSalle team went to see a movie after their final practice. I was the first one up at the box office and they wouldn't let me in. This is Ralph Lewis, the one uh, black player on the LaSalle team at the time. I hailed a cab and told the driver, take me to the black pool room. I got to the pool room and inside were Bill Russell, Casey Jones, and the other San Francisco players. Uh, we played a couple of eight ball games. And then obviously the next day they played and uh, it was Russell and San Francisco were the, uh, the better team as they had been all year and, and beat LaSalle. Yeah, that's sort of how, you know, that's my perspective, obviously, 30 years before I was born. But they uh, stopped my alma mater from having a chance at a back-to-back championship in the 50s on the way to their own back-to-back championship. Just to sort of do the on the court a little bit. He and Magic, oh, yeah. to me, are the two guys who I feel like could dominate a game in NBA history without scoring a point. Magic obviously could do a passing. Russell could do it with blocking his rebounding. The thing that I was always struck by with Russell was the, the fact that he sort of pioneered. I think I think he even said this, which was basically blocking the ball, you know, oh. knocking it into the seats wasn't going to do anybody any good. He would block a shot in a way that it would get the fast break started. And he also really was a keen student of the psychology of defense and he talked about how he'd be guarding an opposing player and one game he made sure that he blocked the guy's first five or six shots of the game and he said that wasn't easy you know even for bill russell blocking six shots in a row that's not easy that takes a lot of physical effort but he said i did that and i expended that energy at the beginning of the game just so i would know that this guy psychologically was not going to be a factor it for the rest of the game. Bill Simmons in his book of basketball talks about Russell and some of his benefit. He said Russell had more value in the 60s. Everyone played run and gun and every basket only counted for two points. So a rebounder slash shot blocker was the biggest commodity you could have. Now it's a slash and kick game driven by perimeter stars. But then when everybody was running, it was a lot of fast breaks. It was guards. You know, is there maybe a better combination of two guys? offensively and defensively, but especially offensively than, than Bill Russell and Bob Cousy, you know, Russell blocking the ball to, and getting it to this sort of pioneering fast point guard in Bob Cousy. And I don't, Cousy retired, I think 63. So the, the first several championships were won with Russell. So he is really like nothing else that's been seen before or since on the, on the court in the NBA. I mean, the only thing, the only you could maybe, if you squint your eyes tight enough, you could see something of that similar in the '80s with Magic and Kareem as doing sort of mm-hmm. the same thing. Um, but of course, Russell and Kuzi pioneered it. Russell would block a shot, and he—I remember one time I listened right after he passed. I had heard an interview that he did on NPR. And how he described blocking a shot and what are the things that that went into blocking a shot. And he went into detail that whenever you shoot a basket, whenever you shoot a ball, you don't jump all you don't jump as high as you can. You don't, because if you do, you're going to overshoot the basket. You jump into a, to a way that you could just where you could just hit the basket. You know, you don't jump with everything you got. Russell knew this. With his long arms, as a defender, you can jump as high as you can mm-hmm. because you ain't got to – there's no muscular involvement into blocking the shot other than just flicking it away. 
But with a shooter, you don't jump as high as you can because you're going to miss, you know, and he used that information. He used that knowledge and he used that fact to block as many shots as he has. If you look back at some of his records in the finals that still stand to this day, it's almost like it's ridiculous. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's I wrote some of them down and it's, it's, it's unbelievable. He once had 51 rebounds in a single game. OK, he has the most full season rebounds, averaging 20, 25 rebounds per game in the in the playoffs. He has 15 consecutive postseason games with at least 20 rebounds. And he played in get this. He played in 10 game sevens. And I'm going to talk about a game seven, one particular game seven in a minute. But that just proves to you it shows you that shot blocking and rebounding was a commodity and still is, especially when you get down into the postseason where the game started to slow down. And he was the key to that great Celtic fast break with Kuzi kicking it out to, you know, guys like Tommy Heinsohn and Satch Sanders and Casey Jones and Sam Jones. Um, that was, the, and, and later John Havlicek, those were, that, that was the, the, the ignition switch, so to speak, of the famed Celtic break of the 1960s. He was 10 and 0 in deciding games. So that would be, you know, a game seven or a game five in a five game series. 10 and 0. The only right. major series they ever lost was the 58 NBA Finals, the uh, Bob Pettit and the Hawks. And that was um that was a six game series. So yes, right. you mentioned some stats. I feel like we should also mention um he's a part of one of the great sort of individual rivalries comparisons whatever on the level with magic and bird manning and at uh, peyton manning and tom brady i'm sure there's there's a million more but the magic yeah his rivalry with wilt chamberlain and just you know both excellent players but obviously very different in terms of abilities games um Russell sort of yeah <laughs> Russell being considered the consummate winner, Chamberlain probably unfairly being knocked as a guy who, you know, should have won a lot more because of Russell winning all of those. Um, you know, that just sort of a uh, a very enduring, um, whatever you want to call it, rivalry, uh, you know, adversarial, whatever on the court, uh, the Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain thing. You know, you cannot have two guys that are rivals more different, both personality wise and the way that the public looked at them and stature. You know, Bill Russell was six nine, six ten, maybe. Will Chamberlain was seven one and outweighed Russell by like sixty pounds. Will Chamberlain, of course, was one of the more one of the most dominant basketball players in the history of the league. I mean, you know, you come up with some outrageous offensive stat that somebody nowadays have done. He's the only the second person to have done this. And the other, other person was Will Chamberlain. He did it in 1965, you know, and, you know, mm -hmm. something like that. And, you know, Will Chamberlain is way ahead of his time. But the thing that a lot of people like don't really talk about when you talk about the Russell Chamberlain rivalry was that they were very, very good friends off the court. You know, there was one particular story I heard once where it was, I think it was Christmas and they were playing, the Celtics were playing in Philly. It was the Warriors back then. They hadn't moved yet, moved to San Francisco, but they were, it was, they were still the Philadelphia Warriors. And they were both relatively early in their career. 
and it was the game was on Christmas, and they had the the game was on Christmas afternoon, like twelve one o'clock in the afternoon. After the game, Russell goes to Chamberlain's house, mm-hmm. actually his mother's house, for Christmas dinner. And Russell actually brought Chamberlain's mom a Christmas gift. So uh, that just lets you know that it was a rivalry on the court that a lot of people in the press, especially nowadays, would try to put, pit them against each other, you know, both on the court and off. But in that case, they they refused to let that happen. And they were like really good friends off the court. And of course, Russell spoke at Chamberlain's funeral with a very touching and eulogy you know if you haven't had a chance to see it, go check it out it's very it's a very moving speech he said he does he does with about chamberlain when chamberlain passes away i think it was in 98 or 99 when he passed late so, 90s i remember when it happened and um you know it was like one of those and, and it just it gives you an understanding of the level of the humanity you know of bill russell you know not only he was a great basketball player later he was also a civil rights activist but there's also a really learned very gracious and you know very nice man you know even though he didn't give out autographs you know he was that was just part of his his deal but you know, he was just a just a very very kind man yeah and i want to get to to those actually both of those aspects both him as a teammate as well as some of the the obstacles that he faced especially early in his career especially in boston the one thing that i'll say sort of about him and wilt he always resented the idea. First of all, to me, there's no contest. Russell over Wilt every day of the week. If I have to choose, if I have to rank, which is a big part of what we do mm-hmm. in these conversations and everybody says, oh, you know, they're different. And I, you know, I've obviously part of what we do as sports fans and as sports historians, is we rank one over the other. And to me, it's Russell over Wilt every day of the week. And one of the reasons I say that is Wilt always kind of gets the knock. Well, Russell played with all these great players and Wilt didn't really have that. And to me, that's always seemed like bull because, yeah, Russell had Kuzi and Havlicek and the Joneses and he had um, Satch Sanders later on and uh, Billy Howell and all these guys. But Wilt played with West. He played with Baylor. He played with Billy Cunningham and Hal Greer. Early in his career, he played with uh, Andrew's favorite, Tom Gola. It's not as if. Chamberlain wasn't also surrounded by Hall of Famers. And I don't say this to knock Wilt, but I just think that Russell was the ultimate winner, not just because of who he was surrounded by. There was something else why he won all those championships and Wilt didn't. There was something special about Bill Russell. And I think a big part of it was the kind of teammate he was. There's not a teammate of Bill Russell. I'm sure maybe there's one guy somewhere at some point, but everybody from John Thompson, who another guy we talked about on an in memoriam a couple of years ago, who, you know, later the coach of Georgetown who played with Russell and later talked about how much he looked up for him. Um, obviously to the other black players on the team, he was somebody to look up for and somebody to stick up to or stick up for them, I should say. But also even beyond that, you know, John Havlicek told a story about how he was a young player and he decided he said he needed electronics equipment, you know, whatever that was in the 60s, you know, stereo hi-fi and Russell driving him around Boston, finding the best deal. And then when they found the equipment that Havlicek wanted, saying to the the store owner who he had a relationship like with, like, you know, give this kid, give this rookie a big deal. Reminds me a lot of Shaq in those yeah. ways. You hear about how what a great teammate Shaq was buying guys suits and everything when they came into the league. So unlike a Jordan or some of these other guys, never a conflict with the teammate. And then, you know, obviously when you, when you add the, the, the racial angle and the, the atmosphere at the time, it would have been a lot easier for him to have a conflict with a teammate just based on that. 
never hear anything about that just what a great teammate was when he was named sportsman of the year um the celtics trainer in 68 says the big concern he has is for the celtics nothing else really matters that's why he seems so cold to the press and the fans they're not celtics after we won the championship last year he kicked everyone who wasn't a celtic out of the dressing room just so they could spend a few minutes together so he's he loved his teammates. He was a great teammate. The story of that 69 NBA finals where he, I think they were, they were not great that year. I think they were. The no, four, they weren't. They were the four no, seed, I think. No, they weren't. They, I, th- I believe they were a four seed. You know, they had to get through, you know, I think it was, they had to get through the Knicks in the final. Yeah. In the Eastern final. I think they got through a young Bullets team with Wes Unsell and mm-hmm. Earl Monroe. Yep. And then they beat, then they took on an up and coming Knicks team, of course, with, with Walt Frazier and, um, and that, that whole bunch, Bill Bradley, you know, Willis Reed. I mean, they, they beat them, they edged them in seven, and then they were supposed to be destroyed by the Lakers because the Lakers had this long brewing. They were just like chomping at the bit to get the Celtics to finally get their revenge after the Celtics had destroyed and beat them in all those years, you know, and then they, then they have Will Chamberlain on the team along with Baylor and West. And they were supposed to just beat up on the Celtics, who was the old Celtics. I mean, people were talking about them as in the past tense in, in 1969. But as it turned out, another game seven in the forum, the brand new forum. Of course, you heard the story about how the owner of the Lakers, Jack Kent Cook, put out like an itinerary of what's going to happen when the Lakers beat the Celtics in game seven. I love this story. And. As the story goes, Sam Jones finds the note, brings it to Russell. He said, look, look, look at what they're doing. Like, they already have it planned out of like what's going to happen. You know, the USC band supposed to play Happy Days are here again. Chick Hearn is going to interview Will Chamberlain, Jerry West and Elgin Baylor at the end of the game. And they had these big balloons, these big netted balloons at the top of at, at, in the rafters of the forum. They're going to fall down when the Lakers win. And Russell goes back and said, there's a lot of things that's going on. But there's one thing that cannot happen. The Lakers cannot beat us. There's just something that's just not going to happen. The Lakers can't beat us. It's going to be awfully fun to watch them take those balloons out of the rafters one at a time. And sure enough, they did. I mean, everybody remembers that shot of, I think it was John Havlicek hit that shot where he hit the, no, it was Don Nelson. Don Nelson, yep. Mm -hmm. Don Nelson hits the shot, hits the front of the rim and goes straight up in the air and comes right back through the hoop. If you saw that as a Laker fan, you know, if I was a Laker fan, which I'm really not, I can't stand <laughs> the Lakers, but, you know, uh, 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 my apologies to my boy, Rick Lariza. Um, the ball goes straight up in the air, goes right through the hoop. And if, that, if I was a Laker fan, I would have turned the TV off and said, dude, we lost. We lost. <laughs> when you win the, the Celtics. But that was a typical Celtics, though. And to go back to his relationship with his teammates and how he was stick up with, to his Stick up for his teammates and have a great teammate. I think Red Auerbach was the one that really fostered that mm-hmm. because he was a guy that was really hard on his players, but at the same time, he did a lot of that out of love and kept them in the league. And I think that Russell just kind of carried that over when he took over as coach in 66. He kind of carried that over. 
you know, the, the, the relationship and the, and that culture that the, what they call the Celtic culture, the, the, the Celtic life carried that over to his coaching career. And that kind of, and that culture actually carried on all the way to Bird and McHale and, in, in, in that day in Paris in, in through the 1980s, that Celtic tradition was more than just winning and more than just, you know, collecting banners and dominating the NBA at the time. It was fostering friendships and fostering relationships and keeping guys that were in the league and becoming a family. And that was that. And that all started with all back and Russell. Russell talks about, um, and I wasn't able to, wasn't able to find, um, verification of this but i wasn't able to refute it either but in one of the things i was reading he talked about how the players would vote on mvp every year uh, and every year he, or most years he would get it over wilt and then finally he decided that one year wilt had some like astronomical scoring average but they still gave the mvp to russell's so the league took the they, they gave it to the writers after that they took it out of the players hands and they gave it to the writers <laughs> so that wilt would start winning mvps the other thing, and we don't necessarily have to dwell on this because I might, you know, our goal here is to honor the man, not necessarily to talk about his darkest periods, but it, you can't sort of talk about him as a Celtic without just talking. He, he was, maybe we should even just leave it at this. He suffered some horrible, horrible mistreatment at the fan, at the hands of Boston fans, probably throughout his career, but especially early on. Um, there had yeah. been black players on the Celtics before. Our back was very much sort of a, a, a progressive minded owner in that way, you know, going back even early fifties, but the fact that in addition to all of that, Jackie Robinson, at least only got it from the other teams and the other fans, you know, Russell got it from his own fans. So that's, right. you know, I think the fact that he was able to persevere and do what he did and be, you know, one of the two or three best players in NBA history. I think that's something that's also really very much worth noting. Yeah, that, that's right. You know, you. I mean, Boston has always had a very complicated um, dealing with with race and racial issues, even for a t even for a city that's that's a northern city. Mm -hmm. um, they've always had a, a, a difficult time with race and racism and things of that nature. <laughs> and but Russell powered his way through it, and he became. You know, and, and that was one of the reasons why when they retired his number, I think it was in seventy five or something like that, that he refused to show up. Yeah. You know, he didn't show up for his own retirement, his Jersey retirement ceremony. He refused to show up. And he had a very, he has a very, well, had a very complicated relationship with the city of Boston. He's one of, if, if not the most beloved players in, I mean, you think about the Boston as a sports city, you have Brady, you have Ted Williams, you have Russell, you have Bobby Orr. I mean, those, that's like the Mount Rushmore of sports history right there in the city of Boston. We're talking about four all-time greats. That, in fact, was the Mount Rushmore of Boston sports in episode one of the Hello Old Sports <laughs> podcast back two years ago. You notice I'm listening, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. And those are the four. Um, and and it, I think... That relationship definitely softened with him to the Boston fans through the years. And you could see him courtside, you know, even in the in the Pierce Garnett years, you'd see him courtside at Celtic games. I think they might have even at one point sometime in the, you know, in the 20, 20 teens or the 2000s. They I think they might have redone that ceremony with him. Actually, they, did. In attendance they actually the fans did there. They actually did redo that retirement ceremony, and it was very moving. Um, you know, I, I grew up grew up a Celtic fan because I was a big Dennis Johnson fan growing up. Mm -hmm. 
and he, and I watched it and became a Celtic fan early on, you know, where most of my friends were Laker fans. Of course, being in Louisiana, we didn't have an NBA team, but we, you know, he either gravitated, gravitated to become Laker fans and me being one of one warning to be different. Went with the Celtics, and then plus, I remember watching Dennis Johnson when he was a member of the Sonics when the '79 Finals. You know, with with Seattle, I became a Dennis Johnson fan, and ultimately became a Celtic fan. Looking back at that ceremony, which they redid, was was really, really phenomenal. Absolutely, and he was a phenomenal man. And the NBA is is honoring him by by retiring his number throughout the league. Throughout the um, league, that's right. They've already done it, so. Bill Russell, great player, great man, somebody who we definitely was was worth taking some some time here to to talk about. So Dana, thank you for joining us. Uh, we we again we won't say goodbye because you'll be back with us one more time. So um, thanks for doing this, man. No problem, man. This is this is so much fun. Thank you for having me. Glad to do it. And that's where we thought it would be a good place to cut off the first half of our 2022 in memoriam with the great Bill Russell, one of the greatest figures and the biggest winners of 20th century American sports. We'll catch you next time for part two, beginning with the great Vin Scully. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.